Welcome to It Could Be Said. My name is Will Cooling. I'm joined as always by the one, the only, not entirely accurate about his predictions of uh, the North Korean leader being dead, Dr. Luke Middup. How are you today, Luke? I'm all right, and uh, good on Kim Jong-un. He's still breathing. It it does this confirm that he, he actually is a messiah, but just a lazy messiah, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead after only three days. <laughs> and for all that time, we thought he was a naughty boy. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, um... I'm just, I'm just really waiting to see what North Korean media make of it when he goes on like the doctor ordered cleanse and weight loss program that he surely got to go on now. Surely they can bring in Dennis Rodman to uh, to, uh, <laughs> to 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 uh, preside over that weight loss program. Oh my God, they actually could get. Uh, what is it? That's a. Uh, um, Biggest Loser, um, 500 Pounds to Save My Life, or sort of like one of those weight loss programs. And they can, like, there, a... There's an obvious solution here, right? Dennis Rodman is going to be the next Joe Wicks, right? He's going to do li- live YouTube uh, fitness classes designed for Kim Jong-un, but that anyone in the, anyone invested <laughs> in the Juche idea could join in with every morning. Well, and yeah, and if, and, if, and if they don't, they're getting shot. Exactly. Now, the one thing we should say is we did, Luke, me and you, not Simon. Simon's like, oh, yeah, by the way, that was the voice of Simon Ivory there. You just heard. Hello, Are Simon. We? Uh, yeah. Are we? I mean, beyond um, not knowing my surname after, like, 14 years of friendship, that's fine. I've, uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been doing a bit of day drinking there, Simon. Don't take it uh, badly. Okay, that, that also, fair. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm on the wild turkey, so... Uh, but the one thing, me and Luke, we 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 spoke about North Korea for forty minutes, and we never mentioned the the Jason Maud's brilliant North Korean joke back back from two thousand and six, big, uh, big picture election special. Oh, the Democratic Republic of Ghana. <laughs> yeah. That's one for all of you University of Nottingham alums out there. <laughs> Yeah. That was almost as good as my visual charisma joke, which of oh, course no. now, oh. now, now in 2020, I realise was probably sexist, <laughs> but also complimentary because she was fit. Anyway, anyway, before I get into serious trouble, um, Simon, uh, obviously we've started these podcasts with like a guitar solo uh, from one of our one of the hosts, and it's Simon's turn this time, and so he is going to do his guitar solo. About normal people. Um, the TV um, show, is, not the philosophical concept of normality. Or people. In people. many ways, you know, they're kind of linked. Um, Can I just say one thing? You know what thing I found a bit surprising about this show? It's set in Ireland. It very much is. RTE got it after the BBC. I, I, so this is, this, I mean, I will, there's, there's a lot to say and like... I love this show in very many ways. So one of the things you do, I find, if you love a piece of culture is you read all the stuff about it, including, like, what are people saying on Twitter and such. And, yeah, there was quite a lot of, like, Irish people going, you'd think after 800 years of oppression, the one thing the Brits could do is give us normal people before they've got it. Um, Nope, we never change. Well, this is the thing. So this is the thing. Like, it is, I think, one of its great achievements 
segments. It is a program financed between the BBC and Hulu, which is one of those video streaming sites. Um, so there's no Irish money in it, but it is one of the most profoundly Irish programs ever made. Um, but it's very much Ireland in the 21st century. Um, so was it very much like the Irish went to Brits? Can we have some reparations, please? It's like, oh, we'll give you some money for a TV show. Does that is that okay? I think, yeah. I mean, there's. I think the answer is that you know they they actually went. Look, this is a this is a book uh, that is beloved by uh, lots of people. I am one of those people. Um, you know, I've read it twice. I read it first in January of last year, and I mean, I literally, I was reading. I was reading it on a holiday um, to sort of Belgium and Luxembourg, and. I have no idea if Luxembourg is a fascinating and exciting country because my head wasn't really there. It really is. I find. Um, and I I know that there's been backlash around Sally Rooney's work. Um, you know, she's been called sort of the leading voice of her, of the millennial generation. And there's obviously been lots of backlash and, you know, whatever. But from my perspective, uh, I, I, I was blown away by the novel. Um, now, when you're blown away by a novel, when a novel changes you and affects you in the way that normal people did for me and and let's be clear for lots of other people there is obviously fear about the potential um of a an adaptation um and that fear was justified but was not realized which is good news because here's kind of my take on this i think normal people might be the best thing i've ever seen on the bbc um and there's a lot of reasons why and there's a lot of different ways in which one can talk about it i think it is one of the most realistic expressions of romance of first love of sexuality but also of um a community of the concepts of mental health it does class i think in a way that is it's subtle and it's complicated and it's actually you know it, it doesn't have any there isn't in my opinion a bad performance in it it is shot like a set of there are moments in it when you think it is a renaissance painting in the way it is shot i mean lenny abrahamson who is the director um is is obviously he's been oscar nominated for things like room over the years um it and that i think really it really matters it looks like it's been done properly in terms of why is it so irish it's co it's uh, the first six episodes were co-written by sally rooney who is obviously irish um and i i was just it is one of the most mind-blowing pieces of television i've ever seen um and of course one thing to make, bear in mind is that the americans would not want to dilute the irishness because americans love Ireland. yes um it's one of the thing you know They've got to get something right sometimes. Um, <laughs> and like, no, I mean, they won't. But it's not. This is kind of important. Like, it is not a sort of there's no, it's not a touristy Bagora Bagora kind of vision of Ireland. It is a genuine this like Irish friends of mine who've watched it and some who've read the book, some who who haven't were like, oh, oh, this is like looking at my life on television. You know, um, one of the things I, I, I listened to a, to a podcast talking about, it was like the school bell was right, sounded right. And when they presented, you know, the lead character, one of the lead characters is is early on is a student GAA player. And it's like they got game football right, which is a um, 
is a sport that you know isn't really played outside of the island of Ireland. Um, there is a brilliant. If you go and search your Google Trends, you will find a spike around Google uh, Gaelic football at about nine o'clock on Monday evening, when clearly people went, "Ooh, it's a new thing I haven't seen before." Um, so I suppose I should start with a kind of what what's it about. Um, it starts in rural Sli rural county Sligo in a fictional town called Carrick Lee. Um, there are two characters. There is Marianne Sheridan, who is a rich, who is the rich kid, who's the outsider. Uh, she is clearly really smart, but she's gone and got to that point that you get in school when you've been consistently bullied for years and years, when she just doesn't care anymore, and she's not trying to look for any support or you know anything else um now it has what i would call and i almost i would call the rebecca hall problem here in in the book marianne is sort of as a student is kind of you know she's gawky and she's sort of you know like she's you know she's not she's not one of the really fanciful ones this is when i say it's the rebecca hall problem it's the problem i have with the adapt film adaptation of the novel startup 10 where uh, which is another novel I, I'm really fond of, but it's absolutely not got the same literary merits as normal people. Um, in which um, it, it, which is an absolutely classic, you know, going to university novel in which there's a choice between the obviously hot but really quite annoying and not very like you one, and the slightly down, down, more down at heel um, one who is also a Marxist shouty English student, and like that's a sort of like classic Austin and you know where this is going but hey we're along for the ride problem is if you get the gawky one to be played by rebecca hall you just go yeah you date her fine and the, and it is all over in 30 seconds and when you put someone as someone like daisy edgar jones to play the character of marianne um you kind of go okay but any jokes you're making about her not being really attractive don't really work because she's you know i mean that, that it's just one thing of that like i always think it's a real it's a real tricky balance um um with actors because like, i always say uh, like sexiest man to be on screen is marlon brando uh, not godfather era marlon brando but like the 50s when he's breaking out mm -hmm. um and um and like wild wall street called named as i don't know he, he is smoking in those films but uh, on the waterfront he's not except one scene when he's meant to be because he was meant to be this down of down on his look schlub. Yeah. But Brando had such control of his body. Yeah. He could choose when to be attractive. It's, it's a really unnerving thing to realize yeah. like, that, that an actor is so great because like most actors are physically attractive people because acting is very physically demanding. Mm. And so you actually can't be that out of shape to be a good actor, because there's so much to do with your breathing, ability to move around and stuff like this. Um, and so, yeah, like when an actor can actually come across playing on screen, that's really impressive because it's very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, so that's, and, 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 the, and the other, so yes, so you have that and that's sort of how it sort of starts and you have this, so she, she lives in the big house. Uh, in this community, uh, her mother employs a cleaner whose son is the like leading light of the school. He's clearly really smart, but he, or, uh, but he's also you know plays the GAA, which um, is you know if you're you know most British audiences will never have seen GAA, GAA 
portrayed. Um, but it's done really, really well. And so he's the hero of the school. Um, and he kind of hides himself under a, you know, he hide, he's able to sort of integrate himself. Um, and then, and obviously because, and, and Connell, the, the, the male character, comes to pick up um, his mother from Marianne's house. And they sort of, you know, have an incre- have this sort of incredible flirty conversation, which ends with, you know, Marianne, you know, with a snog and ends with Marianne saying, you know, can we take our clothes off now? And she, he kind of says no for the, you know, you know, they might be, you know, walked in on, which, you know, is obviously an issue. Um, and so and then in the second episode, they and then they start having this sort of this this affair, for want of a better term, which because like they are their social standing in the school is so opposite. It was like he he um, the character of Colonel Waldron doesn't want to talk about it, so he has this weird kind of illicit affair quality, um, which ends with her with him refusing to take her to the Deb, refusing to take her to the Debs, which is the kind of Irish equivalent of the prom, which again is one of those things that Irish friends of mine say like that was just is perfectly kind of constructed. Um, which is kind of the first time that they're kind of that they sort of break up. Uh, this is going to be a theme, um, and then like at the end of and then they have the, he goes with like a popular girl, and then but then and basically realizes, and then in what well, is one of the one of a set of sort of iconic scenes within the book, the mother character who is just like the perfect Irish mother of like basically goes you've done something really you know you've done something really terrible you've broken someone's heart you've you've ruined them you've ruined them you've ruined the you know, you've and he and later on in the same episode she goes you know i'm pleased that you're feeling awful about this this is how you should be feeling uh, uh, which i think is is what it, it, it is such a it's such a powerful complicated story kind of about kind of mothers and sons and things um they then kind of they then weave with it. They then weave within each other's lives. They both end up going to Trinity College Dublin, which is the elite is Ireland's elite university. Uh, but the thing that has then happened is that Marianne, basically, because she has money and is able to live in her mother's sort of rented flat, like her mother owns a flat in Dublin as well as the big house in Sligo, uh, meaning that she's able to have a very comfortable existence and has all these awful, incredibly wealthy friends. Uh, whereas Connell has sort of he his social standing is they flipped essentially because he is the poor guy is sharing a room with someone else with the only other character who is really good which is uh, Niall the you know is the is the one you would want to have as your friend um, and then and then they ba- and basically they then have the sort of they have this on off kind of relationship um, which basically involves them having a lot of sex with each other a lot of the time um it is one of the most sort of explicit pieces of television i think that's ever that i can imagine um rte's live line program dedicated an entire hour to what can best be described from what I, I i've heard about it as that episode of father ted where they go and protest the cinema in which <laughs> lots of people went you know careful now down with this sort of thing. Well, like there was some woman who basically phoned up and said, "Ah, it was." Yeah, sorry, not going to try and do an Irish accent. That would be an appalling idea. Uh, would would be would be like, oh, oh, 
you know, this was like, you know, watching this, it was like watching a porno. And then they went, have you ever seen a porno? No, obviously not. Obviously, I have not. Obviously, I would not have done that. But and and the plot kind of I, I, I will try and I mean, bits of it, it's, it's sort of it's a very, it's a plot basically where these two characters through almost through mutual misunderstanding and through being unwilling to say anything to each other, they have this inability to talk and then this incredible ability to communicate physically um and like they are having they, they are they sort of they fall into a sort of on off what is this kind of relationship they clearly have this connection but they never sort of formalize it really because there's never a moment of equalization of their positions and their standings um and then it just and then and they they go through university uh marianne for a period then goes on an erasmus program to sweden uh where there are lots of issues around masochism which you know has led to critiques of, of the books that i think are interesting but in in the end i think have flaws in them um then after the death of one of connell waldron's friends uh, he spirals into a really deep depression which is another area that i want to really talk about before sort of they then come back then they come back together for one last opportunity um connell is offered a job a sort of a, an a creative writing opportunity in um new york which and then basically the, the final negotiation is whether he's going to take that whether she's going to stay in dublin um so i feel like I, mean, I haven't done it justice and it's but and there are a number of topics that i wanted to talk about and um it's worth pointing out possibly only to you guys but um Sally Rooney was the best debater in Europe in 2013. <laughs> so as tribute to that, I've got three points. Oh, is she, the, is she the woman that wrote that really good article you shared with me a couple of yeah. months ago? Yeah. So oh, that, first, that was marvellous. The first uh, thing... Sorry, just, just, just quickly, Simon. I'm going to go round and start demanding of, like, Steve and Jason where their book is. Yeah. No, like, okay. come on. Well, look, so, I mean... I, I, those are two very dear friends of all of us. Um, but yeah, Sally Rooney was on a on a quite different level. Like, we were pleased if we broke. I was pleased when I broke at the Leeds IV. I mean, Sally Rooney wouldn't have turned up at the Leeds IV <laughs> for, for all the money in the world. Um, Do you think before you go into your point? Well, hang on, that just from your pre-sees of the uh, plot mm. um, is it sounds very much like our friends in the north. I it's which is one of those things that I really is I should probably use lockdown to watch because i yeah i need to rewatch it years since i've watched it but it's that is very much got that same thing of t charting the course of people through the decades with like a love uh, relationship at its heart and just showing how people evolve as like did their lives change and different people move away back to home um so yeah when i was reading here and i was like oh yeah that sounds very our friend in the north in terms of yeah, it sounds a bit like this is england as well yeah I, so i think the thing to say is that it's very i mean when you read the book they act each chapter is basically the date is basically the date so you literally <laughs> will have like um and this isn't quite replicated in the tv program because it's not so necessary but it will literally have three months later summer 2011 um 
And actually, that's quite so. That's an interesting way into my first. As I say, I'm going to do the debating thing because I enjoy it, and because it's a discipline to my thoughts, but also because. Um, can I sorry? Can I just say one thing? I had when I started writing a lot, I had to break that habit because what I was used to is every point I wanted to make in an article, I had to ingrain in me that give my, give three examples to prove it was true. Mm. which slowed the article down and turned like a thousand word article into like a two thousand word article mm. i had to just get into the habit of no you only have to give one example you do not have to give three yeah no i have i have i have and this is this is this is the thing if you are if you have a job in academia debating prepares you very well for the art of lecturing it prepares you very poorly to write mm. though because mm. yeah i've had i've had to try i've had to try and break that habit to get um to get a book in on the proper word length and it was really hard actually yeah. mm. because it just becomes an ingrained habit of thought yeah you're always yeah. thinking rule of three yeah, yeah. We're, we're like the sith who can't count <laughs> yeah anyway so. so i think but i i think that the point luke makes is interesting it kind of so Normal People is Sally Rooney's second novel. Her first novel, Conversations with Friends, which is also being adapted for BBC Three because the BBC are sadists and want me to cry more. Um, Plus cha-ching. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're also, they are clearly going to, they clearly have seen this being successful and they know, and they kind of knew it was going to be successful because people like me would have watched it anyway. Um, but yeah, the article that Luke... Um, refers to is called even if you beat me it was in the dublin review in i think 2014 which was kind of telling the story of her falling out of love with competitive debating um which yeah as i say she was top of the tab with um she was top of the tab at the manchester euros in 2013 she was like she went to the world championships uh she won a prestigious irish debating competition with a, a friend of mine not that i'm name dropping but you know there we are um Basically, well, no, you, you didn't like, because you didn't mention her name. So. No, well, there, you know, um, you're giving us name dropping blue balls. Yes, um, but you know, basically, what I'm saying is, I'm friends with a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me. But that's always been the case, as you two well, both prove. Why you talk to us? Oh, oh, thank you, Simon. Although that really isn't true. Yeah, it's really. <laughs> but I, 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 so, but so, basically, someone, uh, basically, a literary agent, read this article in the Dublin Review, which I assume now must be one of the most read articles in the Dublin Review, because Sally Rooney has kind of become a cult figure, um, and basically went, "Oh, this is really good. What else have you got?" And her first novel, that guess how her first and her second novel was produced. Uh, so, as I said, I was going to do this in three points. I think there's three areas in which this is sort of relevant and interesting. The first is to talk about sort of presentation of sex on screen because it's the best that I've ever seen um, and that's really important. The second is to talk about presentation of men's mental health which I think is something that we talk about rather tritely but this doesn't do that. And the third I kind of want to talk about it in the context of sort of the renewal of an, a, a sort of an Irish cultural renaissance, um, which brilliantly to basically, uh, this, this is the point I was planning to make anyway. And then the Sunday Times um, Irish edition published their 30 under 30 list of young cultural influencers. And uh, it brilliantly made my point for me, which was delightful. Um, so, I mean, I think it is probably the questions of sex and consent that have been the the heart the heart of all of the think pieces um, about normal people over the past week or so, because 
you know, sex and consent is a hugely difficult and complicated topic. Um, you are dealing with teenagers. Um, I think Rooney's characters are 17 or 18 when they, they, they first, you know, get together. Um, and which is me, which means that, you know, they are, they are legal. You know, they are, they are having a, a sex in a, in a legal situation, but you are, you are showing sex between characters who are teenagers or, although both of the actors playing them are in their early in their early to mid 20s um and in the the sort of the scene at the start of the second episode which is you know um both of, well one of the characters them as a couple having sex with together for the first time but and and significantly for the character of Marianne having sex for the first time at all although not for her partner Connell um there is a sort of moment before it starts in which he kind of he very you know quietly says you know is this what you want you know tell me if this is you know this isn't working out for you this is sort of this is sort of this is if there are any issues and I think what it did brilliantly is it told the it really it really revealed the lie that somehow question you know that sex you know that you can't do consent really obvious continuing explicit consent in a way that is also you know very erotic and explicit because it, the, the sex within it is incredible is, is throughout of it i would I, my, my my line on it is it's extremely explicit but not in any way exploitative um it's the great success of that show and when and the, i think the thing you would do as well is if you were to contrast it with some of the more masochistic more violent sex that is had not between these two characters but between Marianne and her uh, some of her other lovers later in the book later in the uh, television program you could contrast this and say obviously this you know this is this is one model of what you would call consent and this is something that you know it could be argued is consent but there's much more it's much darker and much more difficult to talk about um, and I think one of the things that is... Just go on, of, on the sex point, because uh, it's interesting, it's like, um, yeah, there is a change in understanding of what consent means. And I think there's a that will change dynamics. Um, like when I was dating back in the mid, uh, back in like 2012, 2013, you know, you would just be a bit more... I don't want to say reticent, but like you would let, you would let it become like a mutual thing. Whereas you get the sense that, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, it'd be much more like the man takes charge, a man makes the first move. And so it's interesting how that's changing. I do think sometimes, though, people, like I think like you were saying, like people go too far and think it's completely changed. Because like what that description, okay, we should say, me and Luke haven't watched it, so we're listening to um, uh, Simon's uh, description. But like one of the things, when you're describing how the sex scene is being done, it reminded me of one of my favourite films of all time, which is Show Me Love. Or to use its uh, a Swedish title, I think, was uh, Fucking Amal, uh, which is about, um, a, it basically ends up being a lesbian couple living in this very small Swedish town called Amal. And um, they have a scene in that where one of the women, or one of the girls, really, because, again, it's teenagers. I think they're, like, 16, 17-ish, is having sex for the first time even though she has a reputation of being promiscuous it's, it's a fake, fake reputation mm. but like she's having sex for the first time but it's all the stuff you're talking about you know 
the man trying to reassure her, are you okay? Did you enjoy it? Uh, you know, no, blah, blah, blah. Does made in the late 90s? Mm. Oh, I mean, I, it's not, I don't, I think, but I, actually, you know. <laughs> no, no, I'm not attacking your point. I'm just saying that no, the point you were making no. that people think there's been this sea change. And there has been changes. We have improved. But let's, no, nice people, nice guys did show concern and media was able to do that, even in the relative dark ages of the 90s. Yeah. Not, we mean nice guys here in the genuine sense of people who are nice, not mm. people who start to declare themselves as nice. Yeah, exactly. I think that's an important, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, no I'm, I, firstly, that sounds like a film I should go and seek out. That oh, you would really love good. that film. Yeah. This is back but, when I was pretentious and watched uh, foreign language films regularly. So mm. I buy, literally one of my favourite films is a Swedish language film about lesbian. Well, this is the thing. I this is why I think if, if that's one of your favourite films, I think you. I I understand. You know, getting hold of it might be a challenge if you don't. Have, I haven't got a um, TV license, um, and I'm not saying you know spend 145 pounds to just watch one six. Actually, screw it. I probably am. Um, no, I would have gotten a TV. We'll talk about this. We talk about the, the the bit after your segment. I would have gotten a TV license last month if it wasn't for the fact that TV license is weird. In the sense of it's not a monthly direct debit. So to get it, I have to pay double for the first six months. Because if you have a year's TV license, you have to pay a year in arrears and a year in advance. Right. So I thought, oh, it'd be great. I can just go back to having a £12 TV license. I can afford that. And yeah. I was like, you will pay 30 quid for the next five months if you want a TV license. It's like, ah. No. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's if you're sort of, yeah, if you're sort of wavering, the difference between 12 and 30 quid is quite significant. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's it's been talked about a lot. And I think, you know, let's put it this way. There are going to be lots of, I think there are going to be quite a few teachers who will, you know, probably use that scene. I hope there are going to be because it's, it's a really important i think it's it's done really well it may be that this film is done but with the best will in the world that is a film i hadn't heard of this thing is currently the most watched thing on the bbc iplayer so you're going to get a lot of people and a lot of discussions i think are going to be started by these kind of scenes and these kind of moments um so that is and and the i mean the relationship stuff i mean there's a lot kind of a lot of think pieces on the novel was written um, and came out are like we're like oh this is what millennial relationships are like and it's all about uncertainty because basically the sort of underlying plot of the entire thing is two people who are clearly like slightly crazy for each other but at the same time uh can't ever say don't, don't feel in a position to be able to say that which means that except for sort of a few episodes at the end they never they never sort of actually Although they are, you know, they are presented at times as sort of soulmates to some extent, they are never actually in, they're never actually a couple in that kind of, well, you know, I was at, I was at my, my first relationships were at a time when making things Facebook official was a big thing. And they, they would never, they would, if they were having that relationship in 2007, 2008, which is where my head was for basically the entire show, uh, they would never have made it, they wouldn't have made it Facebook official for a while um and i think that 
there's a lot talked about that. And I think that that is less to do with my opinion with like, oh, that's what all millennial relationships are like. Although a lot of it people should be said as that... well from based on, sorry, this is just one of bugbear. Like based on when this is set, they're not millennials. Uh, they are because it's set between 2011 and 2015. At 1617, I thought you had to, I oh, thought like the, the late millennials are before 2004, aren't they? Um, so millennials, well, millennials basically are people who would have been kids in 2000. So if you're, so if you're 17 in 2000, 2011, then you would have been born in 1993, 94. So I think you would probably, they're borderline. So we, I think, we're millennials. Yeah, we're, I think we're probably old, older millennials, whereas these characters are younger millennials. It's a kind of, Luke's a boomer. Only in the only in his only only in his mind. Only in his mindset, and that's just to do with nuclear weapons. I was yeah. I was yeah. I was fifteen in the year two thousand. Yeah, I was. No, hang on. I think you were sixteen or seventeen, right? Yeah, this is not this proving the accusation that you're old, Luke. What age am I? Where was I 16? Oh, it's no, it's 16 then. Yeah, please, please bring the wireless. You. I'm going to show paper that next week, Dedder, when we open the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, it's true I, I'm social probably... distancing. Who's going to come and run then and do a hit on me? You are not getting on my top 10 list, Will. Oh, oh. no. Oh, oh no. Please, anyway, please. sorry, sorry. You're the only friend I've got who lives near enough to put me on it. <laughs> Same here. Anyway, Turman, sorry. Your, yes. Your second point. Yeah. So I think the second thing that I, I want to talk about and and is 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 its presentation of male mental health. Now, as I said in episode 10, which um, I, you know, is in... It, 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 it's already an episode that means a lot to me um it it present it shows the character of Connell Waldron who has basically spent his entire time at Trinity Dublin having a pretty a difficult time uh which is um and following a the suicide of a friend of his a sort of one of those friends you had at you, you know at school that, and he says himself like they weren't close but they were in the same gang and you got this you always get the sense that he He's this outsider, but he's able to, because of his abilities with sport and things, he's able to be part of a gang. There's a there's a line in a book called Supper Club by Lara Williams, which is quite good um, that I read, talks about that thing of realising that the people you were spending time with school at school with were just people you were standing around. Annoyingly, I haven't got the book with me or I would have found and quoted this line, but it's it's that people, the people you, the people at your school were not your friends. They were just people you were kind of standing around with. And I, 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 I don't know. I always make that point. Um, if you have to add a word before friend and not actually a friend, they're an acquaintance. But I think the key thing. So, is sorry, sorry, I did. No, you don't know, but like, just explain, like, so, like, I, I don't call. I mean, I may if I'm describing to somebody else, call you like old uni friends. But like, I, I would just call you friends now. Mm. because there's no situation that is forcing us together. Yeah. 
Um, and But there are people who I, I went to school with, I went to work with, I went to uni with, who actually were acquaintances. You socialised with them because you were in each other's proximity. Your friends are the people, even if it's not convenient to stay their friend, yeah. you still make the effort because not out of like any sense of obligation or duty, but because you need to be part of their lives. And it's, it's different for different types of friends. Like I don't talk to Hamish very often, but I'd still call him a friend because if I have a conversation with Hamish, with, I get meet up with Hamish. It's just like snaps back. And as if, if we're not, not, no, it's as if we've seen each other regularly for the past year. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think that thing of, you know, you think you've got a lot of friends around you, but actually most of the people around you in your life are actually acquaintances. Mm-hmm. It's a very shrewd one. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, that isn't from that book. It's from a different book, but it's still, um, and in, and so to work backwards, really, um, because it's this odd experience having watched. I watched. I watched the series in oh four or five days. It's 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 twelve half hour episodes that they are clearly going to broadcast two episodes every week at the moment. They're broadcasting two episodes, um, but it's all on iPlayer. So those of us who are, you know, those of us for whom the book was very important and for whom the television series has become really important you can binge it really quickly and there are people who literally binged it in one evening um i don't know how you would do that psychologically um and it and in this this episode 10 uh you actually watch a young man going through a session of therapy not wholly but that, that is like the core moment and that is that is certainly the piece of acting that you leave that show with um and it's what i love what i loved about it and what i love about its presentation is it is so it's so true to life it is spoken by someone who has clearly either has had this experience or knows someone well enough to properly understand like it opens with a um it opens with um him as a character filling out a form um and you know to sort of as someone who has struggled with these issues myself, I've I've gone through this process and the form is right and it looks right. And we spend so much. There's a lot of discussion. You know, if you spend more than half an hour on Facebook, particularly if you are, you know, have sort of old school friends or whatever, you'll get the kind of like, I bet none of my friends will share this for, you know, mm. lowering male suicide rates and and or you know d- take a picture which is just you to raise awareness of male mental health and dirty 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 and i can't speak for anyone else and and i don't wish to but i always find that actually not i find that the opposite of helpful i find it almost alienating if you're if you're struggling if you're having a time of, of struggling you find just you know just sort of seeing people kind of seemingly quite tritely sharing this and talking about this but to actually watch a really, the, to basically to watch a thing that anyone who's ever gone through this has actually gone through, presented on screen, is the first time I have ever seen that aspect. So the the episode in question flicks between the counselling session uh, and the kind of him having to go back to his small town following the suicide of his friend. Um, so you see how he spirals down 
but also the actual session. And it, the, I, I was actually looking because I thought, as always, as preparation for this for this program, I, I kind of wanted to say, watch that that just that ten minutes really, because it every single breath is right. You can watch him choosing his words so carefully and knowing that he's about to break down but not able quite to do it. And you realise that this sort of incident of the death of an acquaintance opens up sort of 10 years worth of repressed feelings and senses. And I, I can only speak about my own reaction to it. And I was sitting there and watching it with my parents and the episode in which he first realizes he has thrown away his love for Marianne made me cry. And um, there are a couple there, there is another episode in which their mutual misunderstanding uh, means they break up for a second time, which made me weep because these are characters that you care about and you understand the episode in which I watched a therapy session that felt familiar. I found, I started to cry I was unable to do anything else. It was uncontrollable. I spent I spent the entire 10 minutes. I'm actually going to have to watch it again. I, I tried watching it again um, last night because because there are parts of that, that show I don't remember watching because I wasn't watching it anymore. I was trying to, you know, I was using it to process my own feelings. Um, and I have never experienced that in my, I've never watched television in that way before. And I don't imagine there is going to be many things on television in my lifetime that's going to do that. And that is, that's how, how to do discussions of mental health is you don't kind of tritely go, this is important. You actually say to people, this thing that because what to my experience what mental health difficulties are are profoundly isolating you know and that's whether or not you've got a brilliant network of people and family and friends and colleagues and whatever who are able to help you out and you know and i in my case literally realize what's going on before you do which i think happens it is still a profoundly isolating thing so to be able to watch someone to be able to watch a piece of culture that says and, and you go literally, oh, that's me. Ah, that's the screen. Uh, is That's how you do it. And if you go back through the show, you have all of these little misunderstandings. And the, 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 the presentation is not, it's not like, you know, you had nine episodes of Everything's Fine. And, oh, we've had a little romance. And then, and, th and this we're doing, issue of the week is, it's, it's weaved through the entire show. And so you have those moments of recognition of the imposter syndrome that is clearly cursing him. And to watch that on television is profoundly important. And I think, like, the thing that I came away from watching that, beyond literally having a discussion of my own mental health with my parents that, you know, I hadn't had before, um, this opened up a lot of thoughts in my own head, and it's why I'm deeply grateful for its existence. Um the thing I, I came away from it in kind of a serious point is I think that this is a moment and this program is, is something of that. This is a moment at which we should, we can go, we can see the value of culture. Culture. Could, could I tell you something? Could I come in just directly on your points about mental health? Of course. We, we move forward. So yeah, I, I agree with you on the Facebook thing. One of the things, uh, this is where I, I, I had a meet, one of those meetings on Friday where you realise, like, oh, yeah, this is why I'm in my job. So as I talked about in the podcast, well, I'm a head of equality and diversity. And 
With the exception of being bisexual, I'm, I, I think I'm a fairly atypical um, head of um, of head of college university. You know, quite no interests are quite coded masculine. Um, you know, although I'm, I'm a le- I'm a left wing, I'm, you know, obviously voted for Brexit, so you know, so it's a very chunky, muscular version of leftism. Um, and uh, but one of the things I always can, and you know, I, I I'm fucking huge burly guy type thing but one of the things i feel quite profoundly is a lot of people use men's mental health issues that are definitely true you know simon's talked very eloquently about his issues i've had my own issues as well um i've known from from when i was a teenager is a using as a cudgel against feminism yes um, uh, and a lot of that, you know, sharing messages on Facebook, it's like, why, why do you care about women more than men, effectively? And I had one of those meetings on Friday where I could just shoot it down. And nobody else could shoot it down as well as I could, because everything that people pretend they care about when it comes about using men's mental health as a cudgel, um, you know, Teenage isolation, teenage depression, um, um, you know, divorce, um, having to work out custody with kids, all, all this stuff, all this stuff. I've gone through. But, like, the reality is, is a lot of the things that happen isn't men being um, done wrong to, isn't uh, masculinity being under attack. It's masculinity as a prison, mm. and it's that uh, you know men don't feel able to talk about things. Men feel these this weight of expectation. Now you talk about you know, finally having that conversation with your parents about your mental health. I've never had that conversation with my parents. Good job they don't listen to podcasts. Um, and so it's that whole thing of it's like um, it's good. And I, I, you are convincing me to watch this. So have a listen to you talk about it. It's like oh yeah, this sounds like I'd I'd enjoy this. But like, oh, I, 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 can, can I make this clear? Like, I think enjoy is, it feels like enjoy is the wrong word. I, I enjoy being what? miserable. I watch, fine, I watch fine. programs and read comics. Fine. Um, I mean, if you're, yeah, if, if you are basically willing to cry for fun for six mm. hours, then my goodness, this is what you, you know, all I can say as well. So I had sort of in the, after that conversation, which I mean, uh, and there is one line in it and I, I'm actually going to have to try and, Get through, get through this. No, um, once the session finishes, the acting is so good you can tell that he's sort of like slightly better in that thing when you are mm-hmm. after you've talked to someone and it's and he just walks through the streets of Dublin and you can tell by the way he walks. It's but they then so at this point in the drama, um, the Marianne character is in on her year abroad in Sweden, um, having a having weird sadomasochistic sex with a Swedish man, um, which is like. Also incredibly well portrayed and well done and, you know, would bring up a whole load of other issues. But, you know, we've all got places to be. We can't talk about everything. And she just sort of it's an odd thing. And they're they're talking bizarrely. The thing that feels now most sort of sort of the most apt is the bit where they're talking on they're talking on Skype, which obviously like wasn't a big cultural moment. So then you're like, oh. Yeah, that feels like the world in which we live right now, doesn't it? Um, obviously, that wasn't the drama's plan. But there is a lot, you know, he sort of says, oh, you know, she sort 
of you know says very concernedly you know how's it how are you feeling how's it going? She said, i don't know a bit flat but i think it'll help and and she just says you know, good old nile and it was the only thing i can say is it, it felt to me like i was watching all of those people who are good and in the right place and you know that kind of weird understanding that you have of the people in your life who are who you are grateful for thankful for and you feel weirdly guilty towards all in the same time and it's mm. it's very i i was completely bowled over by as i said i basically spent 10 minutes afterwards sort of going it took me we, we stopped watching it at that stage and watched the next two episodes the next day because I couldn't, you know, it was incredibly important for me, but I, I, you know, it is difficult, but yeah, it is the sort of television that I think will trigger serious conversations among in households up and down this country. Well, because, luckily I'm, I'm by myself. So I just trigger well, conversations in my head. Yeah. You know, I think, but I think that there will be people, you know, not ex I was I I knew what I was getting myself in for because I read the book. I actually read it again in preparation for knowing the series was coming out, and I was completely bowled over by it, and I was bowled over by what it did to me. Um, and I kind of think that that is this is very you know it's very personal. I like if you were going to say you know if you were going to design a show for me, two pretentious millennials, basic sort of okay sort of vaguely fail to decide what what their relationship status is whilst being whilst potentially wandering around dublin does basically sound like a show that is designed for me but it was designed for me in a very different way and i i think it is just that sense that when we get to it this is a piece this is what cult this is what culture can actually do and it's not that that will do it if that won't do it that that won't do this for everyone i know that like we all have, we all bring to culture what we take, get out of it so much of the time. But I think we've got to, I hope we come out of, of this time when we're all watching a lot more television or reading a lot more books or watching a lot more films, which is kind of the purpose of where this podcast is, with a deep and a deep appreciation of what culture can do and how important it is and how important the humanities are. And I hope that's where we come out and i realized that like my early debating skills i said i had three points i've boiled i've massively overrun and not really and you actually not hit the third you not hit your third point which is no. which is the contention can i just come very quickly back on um a few of your points um so firstly no i've not got a rebuttal no um, i do have a couple of questions this is a q a part so we're we're, ah, we're, we're, we're we're abandoning british parliamentary side of the base which I think um, is, always, is always a good idea <laughs> um, um so like i think the word you said flat and it's always say is with depression um i think people think of it as being really sad and it's not that simple and i always say when i was a teenager and even less uh, when i had my nervous breakdown this year like um um it's it's like this feeling of flatness and alienation i mean as i said i've not seen this but like one of i think the best depictions of uh mental illness um on british tv is the last series of the thick of it with what um uh, malcolm tucker and his descent into mad into into effectively madness like by the end of that the guy is so drawn he is so um short with people he has just completely lost the plot 
Um, uh, and so, so what I always say is, like, particularly when I was ill, when I was a teenager, well, teenager, early 20s. No, no, I would be a teenager. The, the, the moment I realized I came out of the tunnel was when I felt sad. Because it meant that all of a sudden I actually gained that register, emotional register again. Which when you're depressed, you don't have. You just flash and blah, no matter what's happening to you. And that sense of, oh, I can be happy if things are going well, and I can be sad if things are going badly. This is amazing. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's such a difference into your outlook. The, the one question I did have, uh, we won't. No, we, I was gen, gently uh, uh, Josh and Luke have been a slightly, slightly bit older than me. But I, I'd always say me and Luke are basically part of the same generation. Because the way it works is, it's like it's not as clear as you are so many years younger or older. Um, you're part of the same generation. There are like cliff edges. Mm-hmm. And you aren't that much younger than me. No. Or Luke. Um, yeah. But, but. I think you're the other edge. You're okay, just on the other side of that cliff edge. Did you um, did you recognise yourself in these people who are quite a bit uh, younger than you? If they're teenagers in 12, 13. Or did you did you notice the things where they are different to you? Because I feel, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll report back either on the podcast or offline when I watch it. I feel, just because I was working with teenagers at that point, because I was, I was working in student unions and then in outreach, yeah. mm. I think I would notice how different I am to them. Uh, and I'm not saying I won't enjoy it, I won't be able to place myself in their shoes. But I think I'll have that extra step that, that it won't be like me, somebody from my generation, going through these experiences. That's a really interesting question and, and not quite like because I think you're right. I, I'm wondering now, you know, I watched it, you know, as I say, I watched it very quickly and I found myself very much associating with these people, it, whether it's whether it's a generational thing. I think it's great strength and is that there's no kind of like it doesn't do that thing that sometimes that sort of dramas about young people do of like, oh, we're all on Snapchat or TikTok or, you know, it doesn't it doesn't root itself in that way um, so, and as a drama. So I didn't find that alienating. Um, it's out when it for a de- um, Rooney is a deeply political writer. She's a self-declared Marxist. Um, there is there is literally a scene in which they uh, in which the two characters before they go to university discuss having sex in a ghost estate which is obviously a really symbolic thing in Ireland. They were the houses built at the height of the Irish property boom, which were never finished because the property market collapsed. And and all of Rooney's discussions of relationships are really about power because power is a massive, you know, it's a Marxist theme. Uh, that's more evident, I think, in the book than in the show, Because, but um, but that's not to say that there's, that, that you know, that's not to say it's a weakness or a strength. Um, I've, I, um... I, I think, I think on to actually answer your question, uh, which I because I was flanneling, uh, I do think I associate with these people because I think that I, these people, yes, they are significantly younger than me. I mean, if they're meant to be seventeen or eighteen in nineteen in twenty eleven, that means they were born, as I say, in the mid nineties. 
I work with people of that age and I socialize with people of that age and I recognized and yeah I think I think you're right I think I am on the other edge of that cliff on the, uh, the other side of that line because yeah, I did I did feel they were my people and I think that's why it affected me as emotionally as it did now the one thing I will say is maybe me and Luke have been aged by actually working with students that it, it there's nothing that makes you feel as old as working with young people is there Luke? not working with them actually working for them offering services to them uh, no, I, no, actually, no, actually, I, 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 I disagree. I disagree. Oh, maybe it's my I, own hang-ups. No, I take, I take the, I take the exact hundred and eighty degree different approach to that. I actually, one of the, one of the, the, one of the reasons I, one of the reasons I enjoy teaching is that I, one of the reasons I enjoy teaching students much more than I enjoy doing research is that I think that one of the things it does is keep you sort of. It, it actually, it actually, it doesn't alien. It actually makes me feel younger. No, 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 no. Sorry, I, I should clarify. I, I'm not saying like I don't like interacting with young people. I, I, I agree with you. It just makes me more conscious of the gap because you're learn. I, I feel, I feel like I am learning new things. And yeah, just of yeah. learning new things, you realise that's not the way we did it when I was your age. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess, but yeah, um, I, I, um, wonder, um, I wonder. I wonder though if that is indicative of your job because you work in a students' union when and you deal with issues of equality. Actually, you are probably on the knife edge of what. I, I look at the students' union now. I used to, but yeah, no, you're right. I was, I mean, yeah, because yeah, I, because I, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I started this job at Wolverhampton, one of the things was um, um the rise of pansexual as a label um, and how people, uh, when it, when I was 19, 20, the same people who then would have called themselves bisexual now called themselves pan, pansexual. And I knew what pansexual was um, because you know, I'm interested in this field. But the first time I actually met pansexuals in the flesh, so to speak, would be at... Uh, Wolverhampton actually working with the LGBT society and so it's, it's little things like that um, um, we did uh, we did promise um, a um, oh by the way Simon, I've got an idea for a podcast with you which I'll say offline in case you don't want to do it but uh, it wouldn't okay. if it's not an it could be said podcast right Actually, that is a hint but uh, we're going to test your Irish filia which brings us on to this other thing as you you did talk um, on Twitter about how this podcast, I suppose, almost is it envy, but like you're like, you know, how lucky is Ireland to have this sense of place, community, mm. common, um, common identitarian tropes, and that everybody can buy into. And I, you know, as my usual way of being, I suppose, like the most nationalist of us, of the three of us, um, I kind of uh, tweaked your tail a little bit. Yes. Do you want to just explain oh. what you meant by that? Well, so I, I uh, firstly, thank you, because actually I was I did the initial kind of, oh, you're shitposting, because frankly, that is slightly what you do, what you do with this stuff. And fair enough. Um, and then I actually spent some time and I have genuinely spent like a couple of days, as, as I think anyone who's listened to me talk, rabble on for however long I have. I have spent a lot of time with this program in my mind and in my head. So I've ended. I was genuinely I, I reflected on your thoughts about it and I 
and I kind of I'm sitting at this point it has kind of shifted my analysis of my own reaction to the concepts of sort of patriotism really um which is that I all I can say is that I've never seen a presentation of British life that I have felt like that's mine that I kind of go oh yeah that that feels that feels not just sort of oh I recognize that vague thing or oh I rec yeah I, I had a school chair that looked a bit like that or whatever but the overarchingly is just is my own it feels like my own in that sense um and and I and certainly not one that I ever felt truly comfortable with. I I don't feel I don't have an emotional reaction. Whereas I watched people watched sort of um, friends and people on Twitter watching and reacting certainly to the early episodes that were set in a school, and feeling that this was not just a presentation of generically a school which happened to be in County Sligo, but that was a school was it felt to them right and like the school they went to and had they had these kind of shared moments the Debs is an Irish clearly is an Irish institution that was presented correctly and to me I think the conclusion I come to overarchingly is that it's kind of my overarching feeling about patriotism is that patriotism is to some extent it's a form of love love of country is a genuine thing and love i'm i don't want, i'm trying to think of the right words because you know who knows who might be listening you know potential <laughs> future partners or whatever but there is something love is a mixture of the rational and the irrational right mm -hmm. you can sort of weirdly i think bill bryson i think on desert island discs about 20 years ago put this quite well he said you know you 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 love your partner you love your partner not because you know you, you think they're attractive and interesting and funny and all that stuff but also but but that there's something more there's that other level and to me that also is true of patriotism like i can sit here and i can go you know britain is a perfectly decent country to live in it's you know it's reasonably successful and it and it does and you know it has this you know it's reasonably successful and it's quite a nice climate and you know there's lots of good stuff about it and you know it's history like all histories you know is good and it's bad and you know but overarchingly you know generally we've done this stuff quite well and you can do that but you could say that if you lived in the netherlands you could say that if you lived in sweden you could say that if you lived in canada or new zealand you know you could think of a dozen countries right now off the top of your head for people it's for people who are patriotic it seems to me there's something else. There's that sense that you, there is that sense of connection that is deeper than the rational. It is almost irrational. And I just don't have that about the UK. Can I, can it, I commend oh, it? Mm. Oh, sorry. Um, I finish your point, sorry, so I'm with you. I, I think that is, I think that, yeah. so, so your kind of answer about like shared identities and an and envy of share, those shared things is almost actually, perhaps I was wrong in my assessment. Perhaps actually, it's the envy of that. It's weirdly is envy of having a patriotic feeling that I just don't psychologically have. Right. So here's okay. So here's my. So but I should say, I I was being like shit post adjacent. Like anybody who's <laughs> seen me on Twitter will know when I'm proper going in two two footed tackle, really shit posting people. I don't do that to friends. It's not nice. Um, um, I was more tweeting it here. That's how, yeah. how I put yeah. it. 
Uh, because I was interested and, uh, and I found your answer very insightful. Here's my, here's what I think uh, is going on. So this is me dangerously trying to uh, almost like psychoanalyze one of my friend's politics, mm. which is, you know, patriotism is reveration of your country's history, is reveration of what's gone before you. It is in many ways a, a very conservative act. Like it's, it's difficult to escape that sense of conservatism. And so if you're a left wing, if you're a progressive person, a radical person, um, the, the, the call to patriotism is, is a bit of a bind to be it because we don't want to celebrate what the previous generations do. We think what they did is inadequate. We want to do something different. And there's a, um, Nybevan in Place of Fear has a brilliant, um, a, a brilliant line about this where he says the House of Commons is, uh, um, uh, built to inspire ancestor worship. And the whole way the House of Commons is built, you know, the, 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 the statues, the paintings, the way it's laid out, it's all built to give you that sense of reverence to your ancestors, which makes you less likely to tear down what came before you. What I think, now, what happens in other countries is uh, people out of necessity, you know, radical people out of necessity improvise. And they find stuff in their history that um, uh, can be a, or like an alternative radical story of their country. Mm -hmm. And that used to be the case in Britain. Um, you, know, you get people talk about the Chartrists or um, you know, um, the Levellers. You know, factions, uh, let's be brutally honest, lost badly, were irrelevant to the development of British history beyond being useful patsies for the rise of the middle class. But they do that, so they have an alternative history. And I you know it takes one like Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders will often talk about FDR and how he wants to bring back New Deal, a New Deal progressiveness to the Democratic Party. What I think in Britain, because Britain Unlike France, which is, and this is the thing, like, it, it, I'm amazed there aren't more comparative histories between Britain and France, because we are such similar but different countries. And I think there's a lot to learn about the two different countries. And I think it's not a coincidence, I should say, particularly England, but like, there, there, there is, there is, I think, I think the sign of that is that Robert Toombs is actually a professional historian of France wrote a, one of the best histories, one of the best popular histories of England in recent years. But whereas France um, was active in, as, in squashing the various decolonization movements and the, and the various anti-settler movements um, in the post-war period, Britain had a much more laissez-faire attitude. And so actually Britain and the various countries that got independence from Britain, obviously starting with Ireland, um, those independence movements are so closely bound with the British left. And so rather than having to improvise and develop their own history from the various defeats of liberalism um, in the course of British history, I mean, there's this temptation to kind of 
look to countries that beat the British state, establish their own societies away from Britain. And that's that's the alternative narrative. You know, you've got you've got British patriotism, you've got the flying the flag, venerating the monarchy, but then you've got the West Indies, Southern Africa, India, Ireland, you know, yada 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 yada. America even. And I think that may be what's going on. Because I I I think whichever country you're in, you'd be an anti-nationalist. I think that's just your nature. I don't think I, I don't think you want a sense of nationalism in terms of the dominant ideology of nationalism as put forward by the people in charge, because that is inherently a conservative act. But in other countries, you would improvise and have a left-wing radical alternative to the accepted narrative of the country. But in Britain, you don't need to do that because because we've been so entwined with so many different countries, uh, we can all just pick liberation struggles that we can identify with. Mm. So there's two things. That, so brilliantly, you've accidentally gone into like my sort of third the third point. And I want to now because you because you've done it. I'm get you. Um, <laughs> but I but actually to sort of answer your, I think you've got. I think you've now. I think you've got a very. I spent a portion of my MA trying to do the sort of Billy Bragg, uh, Tony Benn, Fenner Brockway kind of progressive nationalism. And yeah, I came to the same conclusion that you did, that all of these movements they found, the chartists, the levelers, the diggers, were they were clearly marginal. They clearly were never the dominant narrative. So if you were going to believe in progressive politics, like you bet you were trying desperately to fit a round peg into a square hole and it just wasn't working. So yes, I think you're absolutely right on that one. On the, I think that the, on the, your post-colonial point is, is really interesting. Um, One of the formative documentaries of my thinking is a two a documentary which you can find in two parts on the video sharing site Daily Motion. Um, wow, is that still is that still a thing? Yeah, it's really good actually because it's it's less uh, viciously moderated than YouTube, so it's quite surprising what you get there. Okay, this I realize that was still a thing. This unlike unlike um, normal people is not in any way anything above PG, but. Um, is a there's a 90 minute documentary that was put out by the BBC in about 2006, which I found as you so often find these things that are become really important in your existence at like half twelve on a like Saturday night on BBC Four. When I um, discovered Rocky Horror Picture Show, what does ITV? Exactly right. Um, it's called Folk Hibernia, and it is. I mean, this is so painfully me, it hurts. Um, (laughs) It's it's a history of Irish folk music from 1949, which is when the country becomes a republic, to 2006, which is when the programme was originally made. Now, the first thing to say, of course, is there is no discussion of the recession or the ghost estates or anything else, which, you know, or... or, um, But there is a comment made... In, its discu- in a sort of early moment, um, a discussion which kind of triggered really my interest in 20th century Irish politics, which was someone was sort of, they were discussing Edward de Valera and his really complicated, very conservative legacy in Ireland in the 1950s. And some and a historian was, who's one of the sort of talking heads, says, yes, lots of people are very critical, but you have to realise that when Ireland became 
its own country. The theory of post-colonialism wasn't really a thing. And so they, these guys were busking it. They were essentially trying to construct uh, a, a cultural identity that was deliberately in opposition to Britishness. Um, so you have, uh, you still have uh, events like traditional music events like the Flachuls. Uh, for large periods of time in the 1950s and the 1960s, the only compulsory subject in Irish schools was the Irish language, which is still staggering, is really underspoken. Um, De Valera's, if you define Damon De Valera's career as basically one of two aims, which was to create a united Ireland and an Ireland that spoke Irish, he his career could be defined as a failure because neither of those things have happened. And it should be said as well, like the clue is in those two aims because in theory, you, you might be able to get an Ireland that spoke it, uh, Irish. You're certainly not going to get an island that spoke Irish if it's united. Mm. But he failed on both counts. I mean, it is. But so but I think the Irish cultural question and normal people, as I say, is a profoundly Irish show that is being watched with love and reverence and is triggering discussions like this in the UK, in Australia, in the United States, all over the world. This show is. Okay. is can I come into that? But that, that is also an example of De Valera's weakness because of the issue of immigration. Now, we joked about that at the beginning of the podcast. Um, you know, the Americans weren't more to stand. So this is a huge Irish community. Like, I don't know about you guys, but like I, I had an Irish aunt, you know, I was a friend of my parents or a friend of my grandparents even. You know, like I, I, I think most people know an Irish person um, in Britain in a way that Maybe, maybe it's changed now. I don't think it has, actually. I think people overestimate this. But, like, I don't think it's an ethnic minority as widespread in Great Britain. Oh, no, absolutely a, a, As the Irish. Like, I think I think technically where ethnic minorities have overtaken them, of a white ethnic minority, I think there's more actually more Poles and Irish now. But that might be an issue with how it's captured. But, like, they're so finely spread. But like the other thing I would I would say, which is I think quite interesting, you, you've talked a lot about the Irish cultural renaissance. One of the kind of complicated histories you have in Ireland is how Irish culture has not flowed downstream from politics. And often when Ireland is culturally, uh, uh, is having its cultural renaissance, it is actually particularly very stagnant. And obviously the best example of this is, is when the first Fanian campaign is defeated by uh, Arthur Balfour in the, 1880, in the 1880s. And then you get this move into cultural politics, the, 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 the founding of the, the GAA, the Gaelic Athletics Association, this, this, this emphasis on the Irish language. And if this sounds familiar, this is the stuff the Welsh nationalists have been doing for centuries and never works. <coughs> Actually, it was more, it was less sophisticated, less culturally Irish tactics that finally got Ireland its independence. And, and it, it is fascinating because I think, you know, we will see what happens in, a, in the forthcoming uh, years. You know, obviously the 2020 election promised change. But we're probably going to get a, or well, the Irish are probably going to get a, a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael coalition um, that will use this coronavirus 
um, as an excuse to stay for the full duration? Um, will they be able to withstand Sinn Féin in the next few years? If so, actually, Ireland's had another period of stagnation, because I'm sure your friends, I know my friends in Ireland, complain about how, how unfair and unequal Ireland has become, how so many of these cultural spaces, particularly in Dublin, are being torn down because some property developer uh, needs needs space for flats. We I mean, literally, um, this 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 is a teaser for the project I want you to do, Simon. Um, um, the Irish wrestling promotion, OTT, was given 24 hours notice that they either paid their rent for their training school premises Obviously, they can't because they've had to send all the students home because Ireland's in lockdown, or they get kicked out. So, uh, and they had offered half the rent, even though no income was coming in, and the landlord still said no, and they had to move all their stuff out of the premises on twenty-four hours' notice. And this is this is happening all over Ireland. So that's that's one point. Yeah. D D D D D. Um. Oh. I've, I've just forgotten my second point, and it's going to be a good one as well. Well, let me let me um, cut, give you come a back. second to think it through. But I mean, obviously, one of the you know talking about De Valera's failures, which is a thing I could do for hours at a time, um, is oh, I've actually remembered it. I right. like I like Dev. Of course, you is, do. This is a weird thing with me. Um, I I am a British patriot. I, 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 I will be very sad that Northern Ireland never left Britain. I think it's bad for Britain. I think it's bad for Northern Ireland. It's bad for the Irish. I actually think the best case would probably be Northern Ireland to be like an independent dominion to, to bring back a, uh, an independent dominion that's also part of the EU. That's like the best solution to the problem of Northern Ireland, if anybody could agree to it, but nobody would. Um, um, but my my anti-colonialism comes in with my nationalism and i appreciate you know in the same way i'm proud of my country i appreciate what people are proud of their country the, the, the thing with ireland that is very different is ireland really was part of britain and so it wasn't a colony it was similar to algeria you think about how even today algeria independence still defines French politics. Why is it old people are uniquely unlikely to vote for the National Front? It's because the National Front was born from anti-Gaulists over the Al Algerian independence. And so you've got all these old biddies who love Charles de Gaulle, as you all should, um, who will not vote for the party of the family that most stood against him in the early 60s. So, clear, so clearly, Britain, I, I, but Ireland had been part of Britain for a lot longer than Algeria had been part of France. I mean, and I don't know if you know this, Simon, but the Romans literally called Ireland Little Britain. Well, that's why Great Britain is called... Without well, that, I... I found that only recently because I always heard the version of it, which is based on Brittany. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was, I think it was a few months ago when I discovered that, like, Ireland had been called Little Britain. And, you know, even now, I think, I think Calais and parts of Ireland have had, um, had long, have been unified with England longer than, than Scotland has. 
that's uh, yeah that seems i mean do you know yeah. where beyond the pale comes from the phrase well it's because um the pale is the area around dublin which wasn't terrifying uh for, for english people and then yeah. once you got beyond the pale you might get murdered by irish people exactly so like it's it, it so, so 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 like and I, I can't remember where i, I think it was, in the, it was in the ft and someone said of the british irish relationship Britain sometimes can feel a bit like an ex-husband cheering on his ex-wife as she completes a marathon. On one level, it's lovely that they're that supportive. On the other hand, it's a little bit controlling. <laughs> um, and, like, to me, I know, I, I, I want to make this very clear in case any Irish, we do get quite a few Irish listeners, I want to make this very, very clear. Ireland should be independent. It, 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 that 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 whole thing had more than past time. I think the fact that people in this country don't realise how Britain had been the bankroller, the gailer of a, um, a gaoler, even a prisoner. Oh, sorry, the prison guard of a sectarian dictatorship of the whole island of Ireland. Um, is disgraceful, but I can still feel sad about it because I do think the 20th century for the people of the British Isles would have been so much better if Brit if it had stayed united. I think Ireland would have had a better period, I think we'd have had a better period, um, and instead we didn't have it. But entirely due to mistakes we made in the 19th century and like we've spoken about it before but my most interesting counterfactual what would have happened in 18 if in 1801 william pitt the younger actually got to do what he wanted to do which is act of union combined with catholic emancipation but anyway, the point of all this is is like what the valero was doing was an act of tremendous violence you are yanking the 26 counties from a union that some of them have had since Henry VIII. And it was never going to be easy. It was never going to be simple. And it was going to take some severe forms of nation building. And, you know, there are a lot of ugly episodes in Irish history. Um, the, 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 the persecution of people playing football and uh, soccer and cricket, the, the, the persecution of people who uh, left the Irish army to volunteer with the British army to fight the Nazis in the Second World War. But I'm not sure there was any way to avoid it because you had to, from the chaos of, the, of 1920s Ireland, create a nation. And whatever you say about the Valera, when he retired after being president, he had curated a nation. Mm. And, you know, it's the old phrase, you know, if you want the meat, you have to pay for the bones too. I think I think people are too critical of him. I think the proof is in the pudding. How many of Britain's former colonies have, have achieved the success Ireland has? None that were dominated by English and Scottish settlers. And Ireland, in so many ways, was worse was in a worse position to succeed than an India, than a Pakistan, than a South Africa, than a Zimbabwe, than the West Indies. 
Mm. I think so. There's a, there's obviously there's loads to unpack, and also Luke should be allowed to say words at some point. I realise I've been going on for a while. Um, All right. But I think I've had plenty of podcasts where you haven't got a word in edgeways. So, it's <laughs> so I, I mean, I think so. Obviously, one of the reasons that we all there are so many Irish people, you know, so many people in our in so many sort of people with Irish heritage in the UK is also de Valera in the 1950s. The economy of Ireland, you know, basically was was withered on the vine, and people went, "Well, I can't get a job in Ireland. I'm, I'm going to go and be, you know, particularly go and work in the building trade in London. I mean, that was a, you know, and that's a lot of why the Irish folk scene, you know, found stronger roots in London than it did in Dublin for 20 or 30 years. Um, so that's, that's part of that. Um, but I wanted to, so I think, but I think there is a sense with Rooney, uh, Rooney's work, uh, that it, this feels like sort of one of those periodic moments in which the world, in which Ireland is cool again. Um, I think there was one of those, and it is, I think, linked quite specifically to Ireland's kind of sense of itself. You know, in the 1950s, when Ireland was a very sort of inward looking country after its period of neutrality during the Second World War, you know, Irish culture was rejected within Ireland and it was sort of ignored by the rest of the world. Um, it builds up a little in the 1960s and the, I mean, the 1970s. And then in the 1990s, as Ireland starts to sort of socially becomes much more um, similar to the rest of Europe, uh, divorce legalises. Uh, Mary Robinson is elected as the first, is the first woman to be elected as president. Uh, interestingly, the three cultural figures that she mentioned in her inaugural address um, have now all passed from our from our from our from our world uh wb yates seamus heaney who died a few years ago and uh, the death of ivan boland this week is uh, is worth commenting on if we're going to talk mm. about irish culture um but so as the 1990 you know that period of the 90s when ireland sort of was modernizing quite dramatically you had this thing of like irishness was weirdly cool in pop culture um I'm probably never going to discuss the uh, the musical career of Bewitched on this podcast again, <laughs> but it's like things like the fact that Bewitched had three number ones in the UK. The Cause, I think most middle class families had an album by The Cause in about 1998. Yeah, they were just of they were they were just there was something very cool. Can about I say Irishness. something about Bewitched? So uh, uh, yes, uh, <laughs> Bewitched Sailor V is one of the most popular songs on the British wrestling circuit because a Welsh wrestler who is now goes by the name of Tegan Knox in WWE but was Nixon Knoll on the British Indies, she would come out to say La Vie. And so you'd, you'd go to these spit and stardust uh, wrestling venues, like these nightclubs where it's like a 90% male audience, everyone know my age or a little bit younger a little bit older and we'd all be singing sailor v it's an absolute banger it's an absolute banger um the which we fair though like say the bewitched and the course were the second wave this again i think this proves my theory your generation behind me and luke because you know westlife and um, oh there's another one as well boyzo they really saw this. You also had the Irish um, dominating Eurovision, which is brilliantly parodied in Father Ted, where they deliberately throw Song for Europe because they just can't afford to uh, host it. Um, uh, my lovely horse. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to be I'm so <laughs> 
<laughs> but also be a long time. Have you ever heard the theory that was all tied to the um the, the Irish soccer team? I just because I because they became a global thing because everyone watched them at the No, World no, because it was just it was a un Irish expression of Irish patriotism. Mm. Again, you have to remember, you know, I mean, less soccer less so because it was so popular, but soccer had been looked down on because of the attempt to kind of boost the GAA. And so but the no, this this Irish soccer team, you know, managed by an Englishman, many um to use a slightly, it's slightly offensive phrase, you know, plastic paddies, you know, the, the, the people brought over from Great Britain based on a granny um, or a father uh, from Ireland. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have pointed to that as a as a sea change, that Ireland was able just to, without reservation, celebrate uh, people doing so well. And then you have, obviously, Father Ted, um, which... You know, for us, it's just a very funny sitcom. So much of the stuff it was making fun of had more resonance in Ireland, such as, you know, it, it, you know it's, it's just slightly done, but like the, 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 the constant highlight and flash mocking of official corruption mm. um, in rural areas, obviously the, the, the really brutal mocking of the uh, Catholic Church, um, we have to remember that 93 is when divorce is legalized in Ireland. Um, but then, I mean, the one thing I just 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 kind of completed because it, it's relevant, so it's, it's cricket, you know, emergence of cricket in the noughties in Ireland. And and it's again, it's a fascinating one about De Valera's nation-building project because Ireland had been a big cricketing nation before, um, uh, before the 20th century, um, but cricket had been highly... Um, looked down on, discouraged. And one of the things um, that's really interesting is obviously who is the England cricket captain in one-day internationals and T20s is Owen Morgan. Um, to clue the name, that guy is, of course, very Irish. But this is a guy who not only did he dream of playing for England, but his dad and his granddad and his great-granddad they all dreamed of been playing for England because they were a cricketing family in Dublin. And what is the uh, traditional uh, pejorative name for Dublin and the area surrounding it in Ireland? Little England, right? No, West, Brit West Britain. Ah, fine. West yeah. Britain. And, uh, and, and uh, these were a cricketing family when it wasn't just that cricket wasn't cool in Ireland. Because like cricket's not cool in Scotland. This was when cricket was being actually discouraged. You weren't meant to play it. It was almost unpatriotic to play it. And and I like um, I think it was Hurling. Morgan also played Hurling as a teenager. And he's, he's he's talked about how his teachers really really wanted him to make a career as a hurling player, and he refused. Um, and, and I think it talks about just how entwined our countries are in a really unique way in the sense of, you know, Owen Morgan, guy from, I think from, I think it is from Dublin, nearby Dublin, captain England to our first one-day uh, tournament 
his team, you know, led, you no, know, the team he led, um, you know, people of all different ethnicities, was celebrated by the cricketing public. And my, my perception has always been cricket has the most right-wing uh, conservative fan bases of all sports just because it leans so old, so middle class. Mm. Um, and, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, you carry on. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that, that uh, there's a whole other podcast about, about Gaelic sports that I think, you know, is interesting. <laughs> interesting, one person who, who was not, um, who never quite got on board with the, the sort of Gaelic sports thing as much as some others is Eamon de Valera, who actually played rugby for Munster on one occasion. <laughs> uh, but, um, do do as, as I say, not, not as I do. Well, no, no, this is the point. He was never as, he was never as bashed. Uh, it might be that's why rugby is a much bigger sport in Ireland than cricket. Um, because he didn't try and close that down. I mean, they won their only, their first ever Grand Slam was one in the 40s. Do you know, um, actually, um, people always forget this. It was Fina Gale that declared a republic. Yeah, no, absolutely. And De Valais was actually in a speaking tour of England when they had made the announcement. And he was not, I think he was scared of uh, reprisals. Obviously, because there'd been the the border wars of the thirties, when it actually been the border had actually been closed for the for the first and only time, um, until the troubles, and so I think he was scared of reprisals. But like he he was not, uh, uh, although he was the first president of Ireland, he was not on board with the idea of declaring a republic. Yeah, I think yeah, it's always interesting that the the party that doesn't call itself the Republican Party is the one that declared the republic. <laughs> um, but so to, to sort of yeah, cultural renaissance in in Ireland, and I think um, so, and I feel like we're going through a sort of second wave of that at the moment, and I think this show is going to really speed that up because it does feel does seem to have really captured a zeitgeist. We should take simply... not not this show, normal people. Yeah, normal people. I mean, obviously. <laughs> I would delight if this is a thing that triggers an Irish cultural renaissance, but it seems unlikely. But I think that, like, it is an absolutely huge show. It's come at a very useful moment because most people are sitting around going, what are we going to do? Oh, there's this show I'm told is really good. We'll watch that. Um, but it fits within a sort of cultural uh moment uh the sunday times sunday times has an irish edition which has published its 30 under 30 list today uh which i was linked to because someone who is a, a as a friend is an acquaintance of mine is on said list um it's the writer podcaster journalist caroline o'donoghue who is one of the people featured and is you know lovely and her work is very good and you should check it out um but they, the sort of introductory paragraph to the list kind of said, when we published this list last time in 2010, it was all people, you, you, you know, Irish people had heard of, but hadn't had international careers yet. And then you look down the list in 2020 and there are people like my friend Caroline, who, you know, if you know, you know, if you know her work, then you probably like it. And, you know, you might have been reading her stuff when it was at the pool and it's, she's written for various newspapers. But uh, there are people like Socha Richardson, who I really like, but like not exactly. And then in between that, you've got 
Saoirse Ronan, one of the biggest actresses on the planet, and I think John Oliver made the joke, the question about, about Saoirse Ronan isn't when she's, is, if she's going to win the Oscar, it's for what role. Um, and obviously Sally Rooney herself, who is still appallingly only 29. Is any, and, any Jordan Devlin? Sorry? Uh, Jordan Devlin in the list. Uh, I will have a look, because I haven't... Oh, no, he's, that, not, he's, not, he's it, not under 30 anymore. I'll take that. I'll take that question back. You carry on. Yeah, but I think it is indicative that there are these cultural figures who are globally being recognised as sort of really significant in Ireland at the moment. Um, outside of that thirty under thirty list, figures like Ema McBride, who is you know one of the big experimental novelists and things. There is a sense that Irish culture is kind of cool again, and I I I put that down to a couple of things. Firstly. You know, the support that uh, the Republic has had over Brexit from the rest of Europe. I think that that's kind of it's just meant people have talked a bit more about Ireland. And the second thing is, obviously, they've again had that second wave of social liberalism. Uh, the big and utterly joyous referendums on equal marriage and then on the repealing of the Eighth Amendment, which essentially illegalised and made illegal abortion in that country, has again been two positive news stories that Ireland has been able to talk about and for a lot of people you know it's kind of made Ireland you know sort of it's made Ireland kind of look good again after the the years of after the years following the economic crash now many of the problems that existed as Will kind of hinted at in Ireland following the economic crash continue and continue to this day Dublin has a housing crisis that makes London's look you know, sort of look like a look like a, a cakewalk. Uh, something that is, by the way, referred to in Normal People, where the character of Connell Waldron, who before you know he gets sort of some help with scholarship, uh, has to not just share a, a does not have a house in a private room. He shares a room in a private house in a sort of you know back part backwater part of Dublin as the only way that he can afford to live, and that is what the Dublin housing crisis is doing. And Ireland is a country with many problems and. A lot of Irish people, I think, are quite annoyed that people like me kind of look at it in <laughs> a, a misty-eyed way. And I'm trying desperately not to do that. Um, so, yeah, that basically was my things I've been watching on television this week and thought that, 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 that. Yeah, that is not just a guitar solo. That is one of those double-handle uh, guitars <laughs> of the guitars 70s. There's like two guitars. Yeah, yeah. That was awesome. I, really, I actually really enjoyed that, Simon. Um so the the, 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 the final, uh, the, the second segment of this podcast is going to be talking about what we've been watching during the coronavirus uh, crisis. And um, as, as he's been waiting a while to talk, we'll go to Simon first. Where have you been watching? <laughs> Only joking, um, Luke. Uh, what we're going to do, we're going to do two things. Me and Luke will do two things. Simon, you get one. Um, no, I, I'm only going to do one because I only. Well, it's not just watching; it's also reading. But I did actually before we get inside, I did have one question. Obviously, Simon's talked about normal people, and there's a novel he's read. Um, Luke, what is the last novel you read? Hang on, are we saying read as in read or read? Are we including Audible? Because we go back to oh yeah, 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 Audible, Audible tight. Um, in that case, then it was bringing up the bodies. the the second The second book in the Hilary Mantel Wolf Hall trilogy. Um, I thought the first two were really good. 
the mirror and the light. I got half, about halfway through it. Needs a severe editing. Um, basically, after you've won the book, the rule seems to be after you've won the um, the booker twice, you don't get edited anymore because like, <laughs> that book is grotesquely overly long. Um, uh, what do you make of the book? Um, well, as I say, I, 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 I really like Wolf Hall. I really like bringing up the bodies. I watched the first episode of the, the BBC uh, adaptation of it with Mark Rylance. I didn't like that at all. I thought it completely got the tone of the book wrong. Um, yeah, but I, I like the I like the two books, and I like the I like the first two books, and I like the BBC Four documentary of um, Hilary Mantel just wandering around her life. That was quite interesting. Um, another question: How do you find it compares listening to Audible reading bo- uh, reading books? Um, well, to, to to be honest, to be honest, I read so little. I, this is the thing. I read very, I read or listen to very, very little fiction. Mm. It is something about the way my brain works. It, you know, I couldn't do anything but what I do because I find, like, if if you give me a choice of stuff to listen to, read or listen to, I will automatically default to politics, biography, or or like popular economics. That is what yeah. I, that is what I choose to read over any novel. Because I, uh, I find the real world infinitely more interesting. Is this and like, even when I do read fiction, it tends to be historically based fiction. Uh, um, yeah, this is, uh, I'm going to press you in the Audible books. I'd be, I'd be interested in them. But like, this is my thing. So I know Simon reads a lot of novels. The last novel I read would be like 2010, 11 maybe. No, uh, no it may actually have been earlier than that. I think it was 2009 maybe. No. A long time ago, and I read The Godfather, um, and I think that's the only novel I've ever actually read as an adult. Uh, I just don't read novels. I know that's a horribly uneducated thing to say, but like like you, I, I enjoy reading nonfiction more, and my fiction, I, I think the thing is, like, I, I find um, documentaries can be very manipulative, um, how to use editing and music and stuff like that. And obviously they're, they're, they can be very limited in terms of what they actually have footage for. So I I much rather read a non-fiction book than watch a non-fiction documentary. Yeah, I'm, it, I'm, I'm, exa- I'm, I'm exactly the same. I mean, if you... The, th- the thing is, I, I, the thing is, Audible. It very much depends. It very much depends on the quality of the reader. It very much depends on the quality of the. I never find an Audible reader I like. So I just find that. So I do like my wrestling podcast, uh, British Wrestling Report on pwtorch.com. Um, I make a point of like varying tone, um, laughing at my own jokes. You know, just stuff to break up the audio. Um, whereas I just find audible, it's just the same person speaking for a long time in the same tone. And the thing that I can't get across is like the few novels I've read or when I read comic books, obviously you're reading their, their dialogue blues. In your head, you have their, you have different voices. And I, I've never found, maybe I've just read the wrong books, but I've never found an audible reader that's taken the effort of, like, conveying differences 
in tone with three different characters. But no, just on, on Godfather, um, um, I would highly, if you've not never read it, I'd highly recommend Godfather um, um, as a book. See, this, because, is the, this is the thing, and I, I know you mean you've had this argument, so we don't need to have it again, but I, like, if you're asking me about gangster films, I much, much prefer Goodfellas to The Godfather. I think oh. that, I, the Godfather, um, it's not, it, it's a good film, but it is massively, the, the number of people that say it's their favourite film, it is massively overrated as a it film. Is, the, I think The Godfather is underrated, because so many people say they prefer Godfather 2, whereas Godfather is clearly a better film. Oh, Godfather, uh, yeah, Godfather is, Godfather 2 is just massively indulgent. Um, Godfather is brilliant because uh, it has Marlon Brando, and and I think what it gets, and I and I know I know why you don't have it as much in Godfather too. But what Godfather gets across is this idea of Italians as, as an ethnic minority in America, um, which is a weird thing to think in modern eyes, but I think it really gets that across. And the other thing I love about Godfather is it reminds me of like my of my dad in a weird way. And I'm not saying my dad's like this. Uh, Hitman mobster, but like my dad is a businessman. He's a, he's a he runs a family business, and I think they do a good job, of kind of rooting it in this idea of um, this guy trying to run a business, managing it, the various bits and pieces going through. So, um, but, yeah, but the Godfather book is well worth reading. Mario Puzo is not a great writer. But he writes a great book, and, and what I mean by that is it, it is very efficiently written. And you do, I mean, this is funny. I this this actually almost stopped Coppola um, adapting the book into the film. There's a lot of sex scenes in it, um, which sounds surprising if you've not read the novel, because there's hardly any sex scenes in two Godfather films. There's only two, by the way. Um, and um, no, one day, one day you will have to watch Godfather Part Two. I've, I've owned it. it. I've owned it three times. I've tried to watch it four or five times, but it's a bit like the Rum Diaries, the uh, second Johnny Depp, Hunter S. Thompson film. It's like I just I sit down and watch it. And I'm like, never want to watch this. Yeah, well, yeah, but, uh, but, by the way. Try watching that Rum Diaries now because that to get off into like popular culture. That is the film where Amber Heard met Johnny Depp. Oh was... crap! I mean, have you ever watched uh, Bill Murray's Hunter S. Thompson film? No, no. I it's really I... good. Like it's not as good as Fear of in Las Vegas. No, it's I've really, watched, really good. I've watched, I've watched, I've watched clips of it on YouTube. I watched a trailer for it from YouTube, and I have no desire to watch. No, it. no, it, it's better than the clips. If you watch the whole film, it's actually like it's not as good as um, Fear of in Las Vegas, yeah, which is but, an amazing but, film. But very few, very few things in this world no. are. But no, but I, I, it's um, where the we wildebeest roam, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah, that yeah. is a so. really, really good film. I would highly recommend it. I'll um, take your word for it, but from the, the clips I've seen, I have no desire to watch it. Um, but um, but the Godfather, so like, yeah, it has a lot of sex scenes, horribly written, literally one about a woman. Now, you know, you know, I mean, Simon, you've watched the Godfather films, I haven't actually. 
actually. You have not watched a Godfather film? How have you been alive in the world for this long and not watched a Godfather? I thought I was bad, but only watched them in the noughties. Alright, next pod. No, no, no. Yeah, they're going to sing Simon. Pod, podcast after next. We are, we are all watching the Godfather films we'll talk about on then. And I'll, and I'll cut short this segment. Just a quick question before we move on to the content we've been watching. What what is your opinion of all, on, on Audible versus reading books? Well, this is this is the thing. I read so much for work. That if I do no, no, Simon, work... you've already told me your opinion. Uh, the honest answer is that I'm the exact... I, 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 so I, I read a bit for work because, you know mostly sort of newspapers and, and research papers and stuff. But, like, I don't use Audible at all. I listen to podcasts a lot, but if I'm if I'm, if I'm I'm doing novels, which I read a lot of novels, um, and I, I, you know, I keep track of them and everything, and I, I, I'm, I aim to read about 50, novel, 50 books a year, and most of those are novels. I read novels. I don't even really like Kindle. I And so I, I, I can't give you any expression beyond that, it just seems to me mostly to be quite an expensive way to buy novels, whereas I'd rather go to an Oxfam bookshop, which obviously at the moment is rather harder, and just go and rootle through things. You don't get I, I there's there are a few things I enjoy more than than sort of going through a secondhand bookshop and finding something unusual. Um, so I, I, I don't have enough experience of that at all. I, I used to do secondhand bookshops when I was a teenager for nonfiction books. That's like where I got like the Alan Clark diaries. I think I got a few AJP Taylor books. Mm. Aren't you always scared that someone died holding that book in their hand? No, that that I would really like that in a weird way. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, no, I love, what I love about secondhand bookshops is I love that kind of I love the kind of the sense that you're buying a book that already has a history to it. So I love buying books that are like you know, Dear John, Merry Christmas, 1996, Love, Auntie. Joan um the best the best thing I ever found in a secondhand bookshop uh was a copy of a book called I think it's something like the government of Britain signed by the author who is Harold Wilson nice yeah exactly Uh, so I mentioned it podcasts um uh Luke how had I mean obviously you used to have a murderous commute you know over two hours return trip um how has you know, going from your bed to your desk, having your parents talk to, how has that changed your podcasting habits? Well, I know, I, 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 partly, partly I have, partly I have been, I have been deliberately storing podcasts, and we'll talk about why I'm doing that when we talk about the stuff we've been watching. But yeah, no, I have, I have, I have been listening, I have been listening to, far, I've been listening to far fewer podcasts uh, because, like. The, the the staple of my podcasting would be the Guardian Football Weekly and Football Ramble, um, and I I unsubscribe for them and I unsubscribe from them and I'm going to undis- unsubscribe from them until football restarts because I like I understand I understand that like they they they're journalists and they've got to make a living and you know some people you know who are missing football might find the continued listening to the podcast. Helpful for me, it was just making it much, much worse. I, so, I, I, I've I, said I it to you before. I've said it to you before, but like the Football Weekly, I very, I very rarely listen to their Monday episodes. Yeah. But the first episodes have actually been really good because they're basically using the excuse 
to interview one of their journalists and find out. So it's like things like Philippe O'Claire came to the UK to be a uh, musician and he loves cricket and cricket's his favourite sport. And so, like, it's like, that's been really fun. And so, like, I, I said it to you before, like, I agree with you. Like, they're just, like, the whole thing of, like, watching old matches and doing podcasts about them, I have no interest in that. But, like, their interviews with the journalists are, are, are a lot of fun. Uh, Simon, what about you? Have you been listening to less podcasts? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I similarly have a, po- have a commute that is almost exactly an hour door to door. And I use that a lot of the time. I use that to listen to podcasts. Um, when I, I, I so I, I have gone, I do go try and go on an hour's sort of walk, usually sort of around my village. And um, much to sort of probably a sense of it fits seeming really uh, unsociable to my parents I very much go and do that on my own because it gives me a chance to catch up on some podcasts anyway um but basically I've only been sort of listening to sort of I basically been listening to the podcasts that I really you know are really kind of essential to my existence um obviously you know this one uh but the um the new statesman one because yeah. you know I've got to have the same cultural reference points as you two um, it's gone a no, long actually, time before actually, mentioning. You know what? You know what? So I mean, I have radically. I, that, that's the other thing. I've radically cut down on the number of politics podcasts I listen to because rather like we're doing this rather freewheeling podcast today, politics is just politics is both existentially important at the moment and really tough. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, I do think the New Statesman, like, that is a one politics podcast. I'm not have to take a break from. Mm. Um, um, I think that, and I, they're actually up their frequency. Then I go and twice a week, and the podcasts are longer usually than they were before. Um, and I think I, there's not been a single one of their podcasts who have had to slam it down and just say, "No, this is shit. I'm not watching anymore." Whereas for me, like five thirty-eight, I've not listened to once since like the first week of the crisis. Oh, but, but, don't, but don't you realise, Will, because because Nate Silver can predict elections and do the baseball draft, that means he's a virologist. <laughs> this oh, is the thing, it's like, he, Vi-30, Nate Silver's gone right back into the same mistakes and made the launch of 538 as its own website, such a disaster, which is this belief that knowing how to count is the same as being able to d- divide the f- divide the future from reading entrails like you're not a soothsayer you're a good quant uh, statistician who knows a bit about baseball and politics you, you can't apply what you know to every single field. And I thought he'd learned this lesson. Like, you know, he stopped doing Oscar predictions. He had stopped trying to do predictions for British elections. He had stopped trying to do predictions for the congressional as uh, a House of Representative elections because they're, they're really difficult to model. So I thought he'd learned this lesson, but apparently, no, he, he still thinks he's got magic powers. Um, but I know we're lying with Vox, like the weeds. I listen to their Friday one because I thought that's more about the politics. But the policy one I find infuriating because you realise just how backward America is and what they're talking about is so far beyond, so far behind even what we're doing. Um, and it's just infuriating. And I they 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 were quite bad. They've they've improved since, but they were quite bad the first few weeks. Like they were they were, they were doing weird things like worrying about how to stimulate the economy and stuff a recession. It's like, no, guys, recession is the point. 
we want a recession. We want there to be less economic activity because that means people aren't moving around as much. If you try and stimulate the economy in this period, you're trying to get people to move around more, and we don't want that to happen. But no, you're saying, Simon. Um, yeah, just that I, yeah, I, so I, the New Statesman, and then just a lot of other podcasts that aren't really anything to do with the, the I do actually, I have listened to some of the Football Weekly ones, I agree, some of the ones um, interviewing people are really interesting in general terms, because yeah, there is a lack of, it is quite surreal to what, to listen to, um, to listen to a podcast about a thing that is not happening and, you know, won't be happening for the foreseeable. Um I found sort of comedy very di quite difficult, actually. Not difficult in kind of an emotional sense, but I find it really quite hard. I was watching um, Have I Got News For You last night with uh, with my dad. and um, like, Is that ever not difficult? That's a very loose understanding of the word comedy. <laughs> well, you know, um, the joy... Be of, more like, funny! Yes, yes. But I do find that you know, having an audience that is laughing, possibly because they're being poked with cattle prods, does stimulate you to do the same thing. And like the news quiz, which I really enjoy, and I, I unlike the, the uh, having an interview, I think is genuinely very good. Is still you know, not you know, very funny when you haven't got an audience. It's not. You know good. what happened? You know what that is, Simon? I mean, I've not listened to news quiz, but correct me if I'm wrong. News quiz has actually changed the presenters since yeah. I was a primary school student. So. So they've they, they've changed them at least twice. Uh, so Simon Hoggart retired. Then they had Sandy Toxvig for a while. Then she was very good, partly because uh, the producer was uh, um, the partner of a friend of mine. And uh, then they changed to Miles Jupp, and he was bad. And now they're doing sort of like uh, guest hosts by season, and it's adequate. Oh, guest hosts by season is a good idea. Yeah. yeah so that, they, that's the, the last the last batch of like six was the first one they did with the guest host was nish kumar who is just very good and then in this series they're doing angela barnes so i can't i think there's a third one as well who i can't remember who it is but it's i find, it's, I find nish kumar unbearably smug i in impossibly in what i think might be the least surprising news of the day of the the day uh actually no because we've been discussing me talking about um uh, pretentious Irish millennial novelists. So, um, <laughs> no, I I really like Nish Kumar. I saw him. He was on a he was on as um, an actor, a comedy night in Hackney. I went to about seven or eight years ago, and it was it was one of those things. It was a monthly comedy night, uh, which then ended with us all watching uh, Question Time, like the pantomime that it is. And um, and like my friend would book these acts, and you know they were always quite. It was an, always a good night, and like. Some of the acts were good and some of the acts were fine. And then Nish Kumar turned up and you went, oh, you're really, okay, you're on a whole other level. You're really, really good. He is smug, but I think that's, it's part of the act to some extent. Okay, well, whatever. I don't, yeah. <laughs> The no, thing no, I was no. going to say, though, is it's like, um, have, I not, have I got news for you? Hasn't been very good for a while. Oh, no. Well, it hasn't been good for about a decade, at least. Yeah. Two decades. I don't, I think it's not being funny when, uh, when uh, we were at uni. No, 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 no. The, the turning point was way earlier than that. Yeah, no, no. But no, I think, I think surely the, the Brian Blessed episode happened last year at uni. Yeah, but that was that was like an oasis in the desert. Yeah, well, I mean, like, that's the last time I remember it being funny. No, the, 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 the bit, the, 
the, when it stopped being funny was when we were in secondary school. Because I, I, I remember watching the episode with Angus Deaton after it came out that he'd been sleeping with prostitutes. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I thought the, 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 the guest host here was good. Um, but they should have changed to get a permanent host at some point. And you know who would have had as the uh, permanent host? Go on. Jamie Patton. Well, the, the thing is, the thing is as well, Mock the Week came on and stole it. If we go talk about Mock the Week, so I'll talk about that in a second. But like, what do you think? Jamie Patton as a host of... Because I think he could have done the authoritative... No! Great man. Well. Oh, but... but... Oh, by the way, Simon, going back to your thing about the lack of laughter, I've been watching, I've been watching um, uh, Stephen, the, the Late Show with Stephen Colbert doing it from his office. Mm. That is really weird. It's a totally different tone. To, to yeah. just say, it's not just um, the, laugh, the lack of a laugh track. It's also, uh, in terms of making that funnier for you, it's that, you know, these are performers, they were sponsored the laugh track. You know, if you watch sitcoms with a laugh track, people perform in a different way when when they don't have one. But it's also um, there's they can do less sophisticated editing because yeah. is, these are basically Skype calls they're putting on network TV. Yeah, um, they don't have the camera angles, and so like a lot of humor comes from the editing. It comes from the way you shoot it. Yeah, and they just don't have that. Like. No, go. I've, I've watched a couple of them, not much, but like, God bless even Colbert, like, it is basically him cracking jokes whilst on a Skype call, like we're doing now. And, yeah, uh, and, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't think this should be on network TV either. The, the Although, thing is, oh, I, if anyone is interested, yeah, if anyone's interested, we'll take them. Yeah. The thing is, I kind of like them, but not because they're ha ha funny. There's a weirdly wins. There's a weirdly winsome quality to it. That's kind of appealing. I honestly think they should have. I honestly think they should have dialed back the humour. Yeah. And just do it as a more like interview-based show. Um, I, I'm, try I'm trying to Google it. You mentioned him up the weekly. Do anybody remember the one? Um, the, 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 the one before um, Mock the Week? That was like a mid-season replacement. I have a good news for you. Um, I'm trying to Google it now. It had... I think it had... Um, I think it had John Fortune or John Bird, one of them. Guys, it, it had the yes, the yes no game. I'm gonna wrap it in a second, Luke. Um, no, hang on. Um, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to go in a minute. So can I talk? Can I please talk about the thing I wanted to talk about? Okay. Before well, Luke goes, and then we're gonna wrap up this podcast. Um, so we have to. I'll, I'll work out which episode I was stuck into to five. What did you want to talk about, Luke? Um, we were talking about things. They were talking about things we've been watching, and I've. I mean, I want to actually. I want to actually talk about the the positive power of fandom and i want to do it in the context of i want to do it in the context of hbo's westworld which started way before the um pandemic obviously it's been going since 2016 but it's the first and like i could give you chapter and verse on why it's a brilliant show and i but basically it was a, it's a show designed around um, does free will exist? What's the nature of consciousness? 
and it's constructed as a sort of J.J. Abrams puzzle box of a show. So if you were designing something that was going to capture my interest, that would be it. Because um, I, I was a huge Lost fan back in the day. Um, and I was horribly disappointed by the conclusion. And yet you're still watching Westworld. Yeah, and, I'm haunted, wrong with you. and I'm haunted by the fact that it will happen again. But normally when these sort of shows come along, I I sort of catch them a bit later. But with this one, I actually started watching it from the start. And not only have I enjoyed the show, but I've really enjoyed all the stuff that comes along with it. So the art that, you know, my podcast feed is filled with, um, it's filled with podcasts I listen to that are some are well done, some are less well done. Um, you know, but I, on Reddit posts and everything. And I just, I love the fact that lockdown or no lockdown, I'm interacting with Americans, Canadians, Australians, Tanzanians about a show. I bet, you know, we have nothing else in common in our lives except that we both, we all watched the same program at the same time and want to, and want to swap insights slash conspiracy theories. Um, it's just, it's just great. If globalization's done one thing, good. It is because we talk a lot about like the 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 toxicity of social media and Twitter, and Facebook, and things like that, and that's all true. But for stuff like this, it's really it is actually genuinely really good at bringing people together. Well, I mean, I mean, I'm saying this to um, yeah. At, at, yeah at the work meeting, I you know. It's been a long thing in in the com in uh, economist circles. Like, why isn't the like the second the second third stage of the internet revolution showing up in productivity statistics? And like, we are, it has shown up with a vengeance now because the reality is, you know, all of we can we are all still working. Yeah. Yeah. And um, pretty much a full capacity, may, you know, at worst, 90, 85% capacity. Um, and um, that's because of the internet. It's because of Microsoft Teams, Skype, Zoom, well, yada, yada, yada. And, um, and I agree with you, Luke. Like, I have, you know, I have people who I would consider friends who I met primarily through the internet. And it's weird because, like, this is one of these ones where it's like I was ahead of the curve. Now I remember having making friends in the nineties and noughties online, but it's nothing like now. The the depth of conversations, the ease of conversations you can have. Yeah, and just also like there, also like there are so many, there are so many good YouTube Westworld channels. There are also some complete nutcases. The you know, but whose politics and there are some that are a bit in between. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There are loads that are in between, but there is such a lot of really good amateur content. Oh, YouTube, like so. Um, uh, Simon, I'll just bring you in, and then we'll uh, move on to what we want. What I want to talk about, but Simon. Yeah, just just uh, it's a small thing. So just to to say, my my dad works. Um, he makes the internet work and I, I told him that was how I described his job and he claimed it was accurate so I'm sticking with it and we were chatting about this and he said to be honest with you the the obviously capacity on the internet you know grows exponentially 
he's not sure that we could have been able to be this success, like have our economy going as successfully as we are, even five or six years ago. Mm. Like, it, like it literally is only at this point in culture that we actually could have as many people working remotely as we do. Well, I know that for my work, we literally did a Windows 10 update the day the day before we went to lockdown. Mm. And um, and as somebody you know, obviously we're doing this on Skype. I've been using Skype since the noughties. Um, um, Microsoft Teams, for all its faults, is so superior to Microsoft. <laughs> Microsoft Teams is so superior to Skype. It's unbelievable in terms of doing meetings and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I could well see. Like, it's amazing how difficult it used to be. Like, it used to be. I used to do a podcast with some Americans, and I'd have to call in off my phone. Mm. I actually had to get a um, a special deal on my phone, on my landline. Only reason I had a landline, so I could call Americans, whereas now it's like, oh, you just use Skype. You know, yeah. no, big, no big deal. Um, on on uh, YouTube, I, mean, I love Twitter. As anybody who follows my Twitter feed, at will call in, um, will know. Um, I love Twitter, but like, um, and I, I find it really interesting. I, I, I think I learn stuff. I, um, I get to tea Simon. I get to some um, um, other people. But like, uh, last month, April, was all about YouTube for me to the point that it was unhealthy. And I was saying this to Luke like, on Friday, so the 1st of May, I rewatched The Late Shift, which is the HBO. Uh, drama about the uh, uh, so the war of uh, caste and succession. Um, you know where uh, David Letterman and Jay Leno are fighting to get to Tonight Show, which is one of my favourite films. It's not particularly good, but I just find that story fascinating. Oh, I think you're under, I think you're it's not particularly great. I I feel I love that more than it warrants. Um, because I just find the story fascinating, but it is a very good dra- uh, drama. And um, so I'm, I'm, re- I'm rewatching, um, I'm rewatching that. And I said to Luke, "That was the first scripted entertainment I've watched since March." Because in April, I I watched a little bit of wrestling, but not that much wrestling. And then I listened to podcasts and I watched random YouTube clips. Or I stared into the abyss. That was my mm. spare my spare time, and I I have a lot of spare time. So like you guys, I'm not back with my parents. Um, I've done my kids with me, so like I, I I'm here by myself. And so like you know, I've made a conscious effort to uh, to, to 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 you know watch more scripts of entertainment. I've got myself a new Kindle Fire, so I can read, I can read more. And so the, the the two things I want to talk about first of all. To go back on the late shift. The reason why I watch late shift, and Luke will know this, if I start talking about the late show on Twitter, it's about well five days to a week before I'll rewatch the late shift. Like soon will happen. I will see some clip on YouTube and I'll watch that. YouTube will then show me more clips and I'll watch them. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you know, I'll rewatch the late shift. But you know what? Uh, I've, I've actually been watching a very particular genre of, um, uh, oh, wait. Bye, Luke. Bye. 
Um, um, I've been watching a very particular genre of uh, late show clips. Simon, do you remember um, when uh, John McCain uh, ghosted David Letterman in 2008? Oh, I very vague. It's one of those weird, like, I very vaguely do remember that being a story for in the election of 2008 for about 10 minutes. Yeah, well, no, it wasn't 10 minutes. So basically what happened was is uh, the, the day where the economy explodes or cratered, as uh, John McCain said, um, he was meant to go on Letterman. And I think what they decided was it's, it seemed insensitive who John McCain was cracking jokes um, um, with David Letterman whilst the economy was getting freefall. Mm. Rather than tell jo uh, David Letterman that, they instead said, we're rushing back to Washington. Yes, yes, I remember this. And they cancelled. David Letterman did not take this well. He discovered, because the great secret of all the late night shows in America, and this is, by the way, this is a reason why no late night shows in the UK work, because they all insist on taping lives, 10 o'clock show, the, um, the, 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 um, 11, uh, the 11 o'clock show, you know, all those Channel 4 attempts to do a late night show. The great secret is, is they insist on going live, whereas the American ones are taped, and so they can edit properly. So, Letterman is like making fun of McCain. He's talking to Keith Olbermann. He this gets is, is why I remember it. This is when I, this is that period of my life when I was watching the countdown with Keith Olbermann every day. <laughs> he then gets a feed of McCain doing an interview of Katie Couric, and he's li they're literally watching it while Letterman barks. Um, questions at McCain in mock fashion. There's another there's another episode where uh, Letterman's uh, making further fun of McCain because he actually only left um, 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 uh, 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 New York the day the day after his Keurig interview. So it's not like he went from Keurig straight to the, the the airport. He actually stayed an extra day. And it's like Letterman's doing this whole thing of like. I, I thought there was, I was a patch here, you know. I, I don't want people to say, wow, we would have stopped the economy from cratering, but I have to go on Letterman. And that's exactly the voice he's doing. And like, this is like hilarious. Like, Letterman, Letterman basically slept walk through most of his last 15 years during the late, no, last 10 years during the late show. Mm. But this is him like back on top form. And it's really funny. It's incredibly self-indulgent slash self-righteous. <laughs> you know, it is like it. I think I put it today. It's 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 a TV presenter, not throw not just throwing his toys out the pram, but aiming them at John McCain's fucking stupid school. Yeah, um, it's quite remarkable. And what happens? John McCain has to appear on the Late Show a few days later yes. to grovel for apology. And for the, like, it becomes a normal interview. For the first few minutes, David Edmonds having none of it, and he's still making fun right to John McCain's fucking stupid face. Mm. Like, you think the Gillian Duffy uh, apology tour that Gordon Brown had to do was humiliating? It's got nothing on this. Uh, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go and relook for that again because 
Yeah, it's one of those weird things. I mean, and that was really that moment in American politics was like that was really important. It was the moment at which, like, America, you know, John McCain probably was always going to lose that election. But I think that moment when he kind of said, "Oh, I'm suspending my campaign," oh. you know, was was it? That was the moment it died, and you know, it, it, that that Letterman interview kind of sort of was was indicative of that. No, no, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. But like, yeah, it, it's just something to see that this is a guy who is being so vicious. So a guy who could have been the next American president, mm-hmm. and the the guy who could have been the next American president had to actually came and apologize and bend the knee. And there is even someone like Stephen Colbert, who is like much more than Letterman, like a explicitly liberal host of the late show there's no way they'd get away with being that mean i mean this is a thing with lesson like let's again lesson was coasted lesson was asleep at the wheel but like if he wanted to he could have been the funniest most virulent um left-wing comedy host of the era because like he he got like anger across better than Stuart or Colbert ever could. So yes, that so that's one thing I've watched. But literally before that, before I watched Late Shift, I'd watched um, the um, Eddie Murphy biopic of Rudy Ray Moore, Dolomite, mm. on, that's on Netflix, um, which is fine. I think it's quite a white movie. Um, it's written by the same people who did the um, Johnny Depp. Um, oh, what's his name? Oh, I'm blanking on it. Oh, it's really annoying. No, the, the bad director of... Um, um, Edward, uh, Edward, Edward. Edward, Edward, Edward. Um, so I watched that. That was fine. Wasn't... There is a energy to African-American cinema... There's a looseness, a boorishness, maybe, and an exuberance. Exuberance is a better word. That that didn't capture my 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 opinion, but I thought that was good. I'd, I'd recommend it. And I also watched a Candyman, which I need to rewatch because I've been meaning to watch it for a while. Because I've heard about how great this movie was. I really liked the concept, and I'm looking forward to the uh, to the, uh, uh, the the this this sequel. Um, that uh, is being released this summer, but I couldn't take it seriously because all I could do was make jokes in my head about how are these people not social distancing? It's like, oh, oh, this is really scary. They're in a crowded lecture theater. Yeah, and so it kind of just it kind of ruined it for me. Um, um, I don't know if you saw this story, Simon, about um, Universal uh, and uh, being threatened by several cinema chains, including the Odeon and View chains in this country, um, for not showing their movies if they do day and date release of um, um, of their movies in cinemas and digitally. Uh, yeah, vaguely. Um, do you have any uh, string opinions? Like, do you go to the cinema often, or are you the um, type of person who'd watch more movies if they're released online at the same time as they go into the cinema? 
Uh, I probably the latter because um, I, I I get a few free cinema tickets with my as an incentive to stay with my bank account, um, which works for me because I mean I'm too lazy to change, um, and so you know a few cent free cinema tickets. So often like on a so I live on my own and so commonly like particularly on like a Sunday afternoon if there's a if there's a film that I'm vaguely interested in that is sort of on at a decent time I'll go and take one of my free cinema tickets and go and see it but I certainly don't go every week or anything like that um whereas you know I do have various streaming so I do have sort of Netflix so it's, you know, stuff released on that I probably would be more likely to sit at home and watch it yeah how much would you pay for a 48 hour rent of a new film Say you've saved those an offer. Say, um, are you a big Marvel fan? I mean, not particularly. But let's pretend for a second that I am, because I get, so say, get where the... Yeah, so say you've that uh, Disney did a... You can rent it for 48 hours. How much would you, do you think you'd pay? And then bear in mind that you could do a care group of people around to spread the cost. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd be looking at paying a similar kind of price to a cinema ticket right like so if you paid 10 pounds no, no no this is where i disagree this is a v9 so you can, here's a question right? no, no mayweather pacquiao and the boxing man mm, yeah do you know how much that costs in america it is some the cost of boxing matches always surprises me because it's the thing i care I, I have no interest in at all but it $100. is like that's yeah but i suppose i mean as you say if you got 10 friends around then that becomes reasonable but if you've got less than that that's pretty expensive is it though like so say for me like say i had me my kids and let's say two friends so only five people in the room now let's say one friend so i've got me my kids and a friend that's four people and let's say hundred dollars let's say 60 quid in this country and mm. the 70, 70, let's say 70 quid. So if I took, if the four of us went to watch the Avengers in the cinema, um, that is, the tickets alone would probably cost 40 quid-ish, 30, 40 quid. Mm-hmm. have to get drinks, we get some popcorn, food, um, which is obviously cheaper to buy and pay. But then you have the comfort factor. And I and I think a lot of the time people talk about, oh, you know, oh, you know, big screens. I was like, yeah, well, I've got a, I can't pause it if William's been a jerk or he needs to go to the toilet or I have to, no, I don't drive. So I have to get a taxi to the cinema. And then these, all these extracurricular things. And so, like, I, I think they I think the cinemas I personally think the cinemas are doing all the way around. They should they should allow day and date, but they should create a norm where it's because like I think the universal films at the moment have been like twenty twenty dollars, mm. which to me is way too low. Um like the average UFC, the average WWE pay-per-view is like fifty, sixty dollars. Um and so I I would be looking at at least forty dollars in this country, at least thirty forty quid. Um, um, to 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 and like you know, if I was offered new kid movie when it's been released for thirty quid, watching from home, oh, I, I'd be all over that like a bag of chips. Um, 
But anyway, let's let's. Uh, what is what is the thing? The other thing, other than normal people, that uh, you have been watching or reading or um, listening to. So the thing I was going to talk about, it's not. It's one of those. It's almost like you know, I I uh, that I kind of. The, the, I was thinking about like what do I want to talk about that I think is quite interesting and you know, might be of interest to the audience to the audience. Like the thing that I've been listening to, and it's been going since sort of the start of the year, but it's a real nice thing to listen to. I think it'd be a good solid binge. Is actually despite what we're saying about podcasts, it's a podcast. It's called The Brink. It's available on Spotify. It's available on a couple of other things. It is basically the history of, of militants in Liverpool. And it's oh. got and it's got, I would say, it's basically got interviews with everyone. Obviously, there are some people who, you know, this was more than 30 years ago now. Um, but this is, it's got interviews with everyone who's still around that you might want. So there are interviews with Neil Kinnock, Derek Hatton, uh, Michael Heseltine, various other um, just sort of regular um, councillors in Liverpool, some militant supporters, some not. Um now the we're into so far um, the uh, we're waiting we've had the penultimate episode on the tenth of April I don't know when the final episode is although uh, the editor Julia Rampen is is she was talking about having going through the archives uh, a couple of weeks ago so and so the final episode will be on the speech and the Bournemouth conference speech the labour a labour council a labour council speech which I don't know about you will but there are certainly parts of it I could do as karaoke. Um, <laughs> a labour, a labour council. Um, so yeah, I, go, I, do you notice, right? You can't stop yourself doing a Welsh accent. No, it's brilliant. It it, has to be done. It's a great speech, and um, it's a really, it's a really, but it's a really interesting series about kind of just about the history of that moment, about what Liverpool was like in the early, early to mid nineteen eighties. Uh, and as I say, it's got interviews with all the people you'd want interviews with. My understanding is the last episode will have basically, you know, it'll be doing that kind of micro history thing of interviews with all the people who are in the room. So I presume there'll be an interview with Kinnock. Um, they've spoken to Hatton frequently through the show. Uh, so presumably they'll be talking about his reaction to being in that room. And I mean, I, I just re I've really enjoyed it. And if you I think if you're anyone who's interested in sort of political history then i would highly recommend the brink so as i mentioned on twitter i've been read i started rereading preacher not going to talk about that at this point because um uh, i'm going to try and bully simon to read it maybe we'll come back to that and have a, a dialogue about that so uh, my final thing the final thing of this mammoth podcast um, Sorry. Um, um, no, no, no. It's not your fault. It's it's, uh, it's, uh, it's it's always my fault. I'm always the most verbose person on the uh, podcast because verbose isn't about the quantity you speak. It's about efficiency. So what people always forget: you can speak a lot, but you can be unverbose if what you're saying is succinct to the point. In the same way, you could actually not speak that much. But you're still verbose because you're not being succinct. You get these you know, people get these phrases wrong. But now, uh, and like by the way, that's an example. That that wasn't a very long piece of speech, but I think that was verbose because that wasn't actually conveying much information. <laughs> but no, so I I will I'll go back to April. And I, I've 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 been I've been watching a lot of regular media, you know, the YouTube uh, review series that became famous with the. Uh, 
reviews of the Star Wars prequel trilogy. And um, the Spectator had a hilariously bad article about unwoke comedians. It was truly awful. It was truly awful. And and the funny thing is, there's a lot of, like, I wouldn't particularly call myself, I mean, we should say at this point in time, woke used to have a meaning um, about uh, black people, you know, African-Americans being awoken to their prejudice. You know, are you woke to your oppression? Are you awakened to your oppression? It's clearly moved way beyond that. Um, um, and also we took, we make, you know, it's, we are talking about the kind of hipster liberal PC use of the phrase, and um, there are a lot of non woke. I won't particularly say that the stuff that I do is particularly woke, um, just where I, I articulate myself, um, um, in various different ways. But the, the issue that I think the, the problem with that spectator article is, is that they're, they're looking for. Uh, politically, uh, politically correct, non-politically correct people. They're looking for people who will slaughter left liberals, sacred cows, but leaves the spectators sacred cows alone. So they're looking for people who will say blue jokes on race, gender, sexuality, but will always stand to her attention when the national anthem's played, mm. which is why it's such a hilariously bad article with such obscure, unfunny people selected. But actually, you look at YouTube, there are loads of non-woke um, um, comedy videos being produced, often not explicitly comedy often it's comedic reviews of films or video games or whatever but like red letter media you know these were people who were kind of explaining and i think rightly explaining how the whole feminist angle to the ghostbusters reboot reboot was like sleazy marketing from sony and how like sony was deliberately not deleting sexist comments on uh, YouTube videos for the Ghostbusters trailer, mm. while deleting accurate, non-sexist uh, critiques of the film to make everybody look like a sexist uh, troller guy who doesn't like that movie, which is a terrible movie, by the way. Um, but they, since this pandemic has hit, have, you know, like, they sound like fucking Marxists about, wow. you know you know, how... Uh, making fun of people who are stockpiling, making fun of people who uh, won't self self distance, making fun of people, making fun of celebrities who are pontificating from their rich houses. But like the spectator wouldn't dare celebrate them because, oh, wait a minute, that's a uh, that sounds like commie talk there. <laughs> um, um, but what I do really admire of these, these are independent business, like, so Red Letter Media and those three guys, well, Mike Slosser, Mike S, uh, Jay Bowerman, and Rich Evans. Um, I think that they're the first to own it, and then their friend Rich Evans is their, uh, is their employee. And so, like, you know, they're reliant on YouTube clicks, they're reliant on Patreon subscriptions for their income. This is their full-time job. But like they have not done 
certain of their series of videos because they don't think they can social distance. And so, like, you know, we talked about it a couple of episodes again, talking about pro wrestling and pro wrestling still going on despite the lockdown. These are people who think they can't social distance whilst, for example, having six people in a room watching a movie. And, you know, I admire that. I admire the fact that they are taking that uh, decision and saying, like, we're not going to put ourselves at risk. We're not going to put our friends or our employees at risk. Um, And yet you've got more billion-dollar companies who happily have put people at risk for much more physically onerous, much more high-contact pursuits. Mm. Yes, I I watch a lot of Red Letter Media. It, It is my comfort food. Uh, well, a lot of video game streams, but uh, when we do, we'll probably do this again in June and look back at the previous month, and uh, hopefully, I'll have some more varied things to talk about. Any final thoughts, Simon? No, um, that that I, I look. If, it, uh, if there's one person who doesn't need to speak anymore on this podcast, it's me this week. <laughs> so um... there's a there's a first time for everything, Simon. Uh, yeah, to be to be fair, that is accurate. Um... <laughs> I, I think I think you may have just pulled level with Luke. Um, if we look at a free a free episode average, I just yeah no, but that that that's uh, that's that's enough from me. I think so. Thank you. And that's and that's enough from me. And Luke, any further thoughts? What's that, Luke? Will is great, and um, you ab- you absolutely should vote SNP. Oh, I'm surprised you said that, Luke. Uh, that bombshell. I've been Will Cooling. He's been Luke Middup. He's been Simon Harvey. And we'll talk to you again um, afterwards. Um, our lawyers would would like to say that that wasn't actually the opinions of Dr. Luke Middup. That was Will Cooling uh, making a joke. Uh, Dr. Luke Middup does not believe Scotland you should vote SNP. He believes you should vote Plaid Cymru!